Blackbirds in the Realm of Darkness, with special guest Jim Goodall and guest co-host Jared Murphy. Episode 8, Season 2 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin. I'm Michelle. And I'm Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, and come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. Hey everybody, welcome back. Hello everyone. Oh, welcome to the only podcast in the world where when you go down the rabbit hole, you're taking an escalator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that pretty much explains how... Uh things are starting out this summer yes it's too bad that i missed this interview i would have enjoyed talking to jim and to jared yes what a fantastic interview and uh before we jump into the news and everything this is episode eight of season two and we're calling this one blackbirds in the realm of darkness with special guest Jim Goodall, and since I could not find my wife anywhere um, to help co-host with me. <laughs> that's because uh, I was at Fort Field with the DCI professional marching bands. Well, we were able to get a good friend of the podcast, Mr. Jared Murphy, the author of It's Not Aliens Worse, It's Us, and of the Not Aliens uh, YouTube channel to uh, come on and help with some uh co-hosting so yeah was great i was gonna to have say for a co-host i approve of jared <laughs> yes very much so so that was great to have him on wife's approval the wife's approval <laughs> happy wife happy life remember hey. that guys there we go there's the signature tagline well at least i have you back for this portion of the podcast and when we wrap things up, uh, we'll have a little conversation. And so. our next two interviews, but we... Yeah, we'll talk about that those later. Those come up later on. Yeah, these are going to be some great shows coming up. But, just so everybody knows, don't forget, we're now on YouTube. That's right. You can search us out by typing in Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast in the search field on YouTube. And you should be able to find us. And don't forget, if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or your story on the podcast. Also, if you would like to support the podcast, because that's how we can keep this thing going, and you would like to rock out some of the latest swag, head on over to our online store. That's miufopodcaststore.online. And if you like the show, 
Don't forget to check out our Patreon page if you would like to support the podcast and and keep us going. It is patreon.com forward slash M-I-U-F-O-S-P-E-P where you can sign up. We can't wait to give you a shout out for all of your support on future episodes. All of those things that we just talked about can be found in the show notes. So feel free to click on any of those links and it'll take you to any of those pages. But now, Michelle, I think it's that time. It's time for what's in the news. Yes. What is in the news? Coming out of Fox News, San Diego flashing lights mystery finally has an explanation. The puzzling phenomenon was reportedly seen in San Diego and Tijuana. The mysterious lights floating over San Diego finally have an explanation. On Monday evening, so this week, strange patterns of moving lights were seen floating above the city. Images and videos of the phenomenon quickly garnered attention on social media. And when I say garnered, when they say garnered attention, they are not joking. These home videos with just like the spastic, crazy sounds of people recording them. Um, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it's over the top. It, it really is. You want to talk about uh, over dramatic much? And oh, oh. Wait till we get to that. Wait till we get to the end. So the the levitating lights described as orange in hue and in a definitive pattern baffled observers who were left unconvinced that they were of natural origins. Some others even suspected unidentified flying objects or UFOs or, or alien origins. But the U.S. Coast Guard said they were actually from flares fired from a ship off the coast. The puzzling pixels were reportedly from naval crews conducting flare training with expired flares, the Coast Guard said, per their television and KGTV. You know what? That's absolutely right. One of the things you can tell these lights are flares is by the way they flicker. They they were flickering as if they were burning, number one. And number two, they last for about five minutes. Yeah, and... The and light. go out almost to the second. They're designed that way. For so, and then they were also reportedly seen in nearby Tijuana. Um, I like this. A witness told KGTV that she saw planes in the sky and boats in the water. She said the strange lights were brighter than the lights on the planes and those on the boat. I like the kid on Twitter. There are some wild lights floating over downtown San Diego. Does anyone know if it's 4th of July related or the Navy? Or do I get to believe it's finally aliens visiting us? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, this is crazy oh my god you know now now because of the the ufo mainstreaming that's happened now everything in the sky is going to be on the news and it's going to be ufos i'll tell you though definitely check out this link because some of the the videos i mean they're cool to see yes they are they are cool. but it's flares yeah you can you can definitely tell so not landing lights, not a triangle, they're, they're flares. No, but depending on the angle you were to look at those things, they would look like a triangular craft. Well, and if you've never seen any of these before and you see them for the first time, 
Yeah. yeah I could... These are military flares. They, they shoot them up into the sky and then they ignite and then float down on parachutes and they float down very, very slowly. But the fuse in them only burns for about five minutes. Well, it sounds like, you know, San Diego and Tijuana got an early 4th of July show. Yep. All right. Moving on to other items in the news coming out of USA Today. NASA baffled by mystery rocket body that crashed into the moon. Okay. And I need to give a special shout out because I learned of this news article from Richie over at Goofon. Yes. So Richie over at Goofon was talking about this and I thought this would be perfect since that one article was so short. Let's talk about this one. Well, yeah, anything that crashes into the moon, we've got to look into. So a mystery rocket body that crashed into the moon is baffling NASA. According to NASA, astronomers discovered a rocket body heading toward a lunar collision late last year. Impact occurred on March 4th, and NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spotted the crash site on the moon's surface shortly after. New images shared on June 24th by NASA show a snapshot of the site. The crash landing left behind a double crater more than 90 feet wide, the Space Administration reported in a news release. According to the Space Administration, two large masses on each end of the rocket may have caused the craters, but it noted that the impact marks are highly unusual. Typically, a spent rocket mass is concentrated at the motor end. The rest of the rocket stage mainly consists of an empty fuel tank, NASA said in the news release. Since the origin of the rocket body remains uncertain, the double nature of the crater may indicate its identity, NASA wrote. So no space exploring nations have claimed responsibility for the projectile, which leaves scientists baffled about who was behind its launch, the Houston Chronicle reported. So, I mean, if you take a look. It's really bizarre. At these photos and the crater that it created. That is crazy. And it looks like it looks like there's two craters, but. I think one of the craters was already there. And then it looks like the rocket body. I mean, the best we can make out the rocket body is still sitting in the one on the right hand side. And that looks like the fresher crater. However, how fast was this thing going to create a crater like that? And it's the whodunit. Yeah, whose rocket body is that that got out of Earth's orbit? And That's then... the whole thing. It's the who done it. It's like who's going to take credit for this one? Well, what was it last year that the Chinese had a uh, rover on the moon? Hmm? So it might be from the Chinese. So well, you just never know, and we'll you know keep our ears peeled on that one to see if anybody claims its origin. Yeah, we shall see. All right. Well, I think we should basically get into... You've got a long interview oh, with your man. guy's night out since wifey here was... Yeah, we man, we cover a, all kinds thing. of things from the history of the SR-71 Blackbird to strange synchronicities and... To the TR-3B. Uh... All kinds UFOs, of dreaming and 
all that. So you guys talked a lot about a lot. We did. It's a very long interview. I think it clocks in at about two hours and 25 minutes. So. Well, for those who don't know who Jim Goodall is, let's go into a little bit of a background to let our listening audience know. Um, James C. Goodall is a published author with 24 books in print and with book number 25, A Pictorial History of the Seawolf Virginia-class nuclear submarines in the final stages of going to press. He is a recognized expert on low observable aircraft such as the F-117, B-2A, the Lockheed Twins, the F-22 and the F-35, and the Lockheed Skunk Works family of blackbirds. Photographing and writing about spooky aircraft for the last 35 years, he is also an acknowledged expert on Area 51 as it pertains to flight testing classified aircraft in a remote location. His very first book, co-authored with Bill Sweetman, was the first volume in print on the F-117, and it sold more than 60,000 copies. James's seven previous books with Squadron Signal have sold a minimum of 3,500 copies to a maximum of 17,000 copies. Even the $100 U.S. Blackbird flight manual that was published by Motor Books in 1990 sold 1,500 copies in 15 months. His Blackbird pictorial from Schiffer, published in May of 2018, is considered by many in the spooky aircraft world to be the most complete pictorial ever assembled on the subject. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, with my special co-host for the evening, Jared Murphy, let's go ahead and welcome Mr. Jim Goodall. My guest for tonight is a very, very well-known, I guess you would say, troublemaker for the Air Force in Area 51, but we can dig into that a little bit. But this person is an incredible author with over 100 books to his name, more coming out, I'm sure, which we'll talk about. But we've got Mr. Jim Goodall joining us tonight. Jim, thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, and um, we're off and running. We're off and running. Yeah. And then, as a special co-host tonight, since Michelle could not join uh, for the conversation, I hit up our good friend, Mr. Jared Murphy from Not Aliens and the author of It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. Jared, (laughs) thanks for joining us. That that's great. I mean, uh, I'm looking forward to being on with you guys. And uh, of course, as I'm so close to releasing the second version of my book, I'm now retrospectively thinking, if he got a hundred books out, what is my problem taking seven months to get my rewrite out? Well, no, it, I, <laughs> actually, I, don't, I only have twenty nine books. I mean, it's I, I appreciate I appreciate the. Uh, I thought uh, you were over a hundred now. No, I, it's over. I, I've had over over four thousand. My photos are uh, published. Uh, I have been in over a hundred. I have contributed to over a hundred different books by okay. various authors. Uh, my personal, personally, the my twenty eighth book was my seventy five years of the Lockheed Skunk Works. 
which is uh, 384 pages. It weighs five and a half pounds. And it's, it's, it's been out just not quite a year. And it's in its third printing. So that just thrills the hell out of me. Yeah, I know Amazon said they were going to charge me an extra fee because of how heavy your book is. So yeah, f- five and a half pounds. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for the loan to go through so I can yeah. pay that fee. <laughs> but yeah. um, can you give our audience who may not be familiar with you a little bit of background on who Jim Goodall is? Well, uh, who am I? I am a, a guy who absolutely loves airplanes. The spookier, the better. I love things that go bump in the night. It's always been my job to challenge our government because it's, it's for and by the people. I know when I did the, my very, very first book was on the F-117. And I, my wing commander there at the, the Minnesota Air Guard, uh, he was flying from Northwest. He called me into his office one day and I was the wing historian and retired as a master sergeant. He said, he said, Jim, he said, uh, I fly with a guy who's one of the first guys to fly the F-117. You want to interview him? And this is before anybody had seen the F-117. And I said, sure. So his name was uh, Steve Paulson. Yeah, his call sign was Hollywood. And his, uh, I called him up, told him who I was. He said, oh, yeah, you know, Pat told me all about you. Uh, and lived in Wyzetta. And uh Jared knows where that where that's at. It's a beautiful part of uh, you know, the western suburbs. It's pretty stunning. Yeah. So I uh, I went in here. I, uh, Bill Sweetman and I put together four hundred questions in five different categories. And Bill at the time was a published author, and I hadn't published anything at that time. Contributed to a lot, but didn't publish anything. So I sat down with Steve on three different occasions, and out of the four four hundred questions, we actually got it up to about. Uh, 520 there were only three questions he wouldn't answer and i was able to figure it out and that was the 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 substance of my very first book and i co-authored with bill sweetman but and that's that was sort of the catalyst but my area of expertise is the blackbird i said i'm uh, i joined the air force on march 27th 1962 Uh, i was a juvenile delinquent and i it was either shape up and go to jail till I was 18 or go in the service. So I went in the service because I knew I wasn't going to shape up and fly right. Uh, so I aced all the tests so I could go anything I wanted to go into. And I, end, I actually ended it up, up in a career field that I didn't start with, but I got into uh, becoming a historian. And that's what I really love. But I was assigned to Edwards Air Force Base on temporary duty to support three programs for category one testing. And that was the YC-141 Starlifter from Lockheed, the North American Aviation XB-70 Valkyrie, and at the time, a classified program, which turned out to be the Lockheed Skunk Works Blackbird, the YF-12 Interceptor. And I saw my first Blackbird on March 10th, 1964, and I've never been the same since. And because of that, I started digging into the Blackbird program, and the official policy was not to cooperate. I sent letters to Air Force, to uh, Lockheed, to Department of Defense, to, to uh, everybody I can think of, my senators, my congressmen, got nowhere. So I started digging. The more I dug, the more I found out, the more I found out, the deeper I dug. And over the course of the uh, last 60 years, I became the world's foremost authority on the history and development of the Lockheed family of Blackbirds. And even even Sherman Mullen and uh, Jack Gordon, 
uh, Jeff Babion and uh, Rob Weiss, all four of those gentlemen were uh, he the heads of the Skunk Works. They all said that my, my, my Black Blue book and my 75 Years of the Skunk Work books are their absolute favorite books anywhere. So uh, that's sort of my background. I had uh, five years active duty in the Air Force. I had a 10-year break. I had 21 years as a traditional weekender with the Minnesota Air Guard. I'm very proud of that. And I scrounged a Blackbird. Uh, I, had, I had a friendship with Ben Rich, who at the time was the president of the Skunk Works. He replaced Kelly Johnson. And we talked once a quarter for 25 years. And I don't know how I got on his call sheet, but he'd either call me or I'd call him. And in August of 89, he calls me at home. He said, Jim, I says, I got uh, some information for you. I said, what's that? He said, I got it from the horse's mouth. The Blackbirds aren't going to make it through Congress. And if anybody can scrounge one, it's you. So I started the ball rolling. I called the adjutant general of the state of New York, called the secretary and, and uh, said, General Weaver's office. I said, yes, ma'am. This is Sergeant Goodall with the 133rd. Is General Weaver available? I said, just a minute. I'll put you through. So General Weaver gets in the side and he said, Sarge, how can I help you? I said, sir, how would the New York Air Guard like to move the world's fastest airplane in a couple of your C-5s? And he said, you mean the Blackbird? I said, yes, sir. And he said, when you're ready, you call Will Hall. About the same time, Pratt and Whitney was trying to get a Blackbird uh, and put it on a, on a wind vane out of West Palm Beach, where, they, where their engine test facility is. And... Arnie Gunderson, who was Mr. J-58 for the, on the BlackBerry program from beginning to end, uh, he asked the Air Force, would you lease us a C-5? Now, can we lease a C-5 from you? He said, the Air Force said, yes, it's $967,000 a day plus gas. And I scrounged two C-5s for eight days each. And it, was, it cost us absolutely nothing. So I'm also one of the best scroungers in the Air Force. So I went to my, I went to my boss, who was a two-star, General uh, Schwab, and I said, General Schwab, I want to get a Blackbird for the Minnesota Air Guard Museum. He starts laughing at me. I said, General, don't just laugh at me and say no. Give me the opportunity to fail. And that's when he asked me, well, how are you going to get it here? And I told him, I got, I got two C-5s lined, lined up. All we have to do is make a phone call. And from there, I got the entire Minnesota congressional delegation to sign off on our letter to the Air Force Museum because the contributions from uh, Rosemont, from Honeywell, and from 3M and Sheldahl, those are all programs that supported the Blackbird program. And five of the first nine pilots to fly the Blackbird learned how to fly in the Air Guard. Bob Gillen with the Texas, I mean, with the Tennessee Air Guard. Jim Eastham with the Georgia Air Guard and same with uh, 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 Lou Shock. So uh, we got one. Uh, Desert Storm slowed it down a year, but on uh, the 30th of October, 1991, just before we had 61 inches of snow, that was that uh, 1991 blizzard right, right around Halloween. Where four, you know, th three storms came through and over 10 days dumped 61 inches. And then uh, we, were, we thought we were going to be in for a, a terrible winter. Then again, it didn't snow again until March. So, but my, my, my background just, I, is a, a love and an obsession with airplanes. And the spookier, the better. 
Now, did that start before the military when you were like a kid or was this something after you joined the Air Force that you got passionate about? No, the way, the way really the catalyst that really brought everything to a head uh, at the time, I'm five years, maybe six years old. We're living in San Jose, not that far from San Jose Municipal Airport. It was, it was still light out and I'd already gone to bed. And my dad came into the bedroom and he said, I don't know what's coming, but you got to get up and see it. So he went outside and there was a, a the, felt like the ground was vibrating. It was, uh, and over the coast mountains came not one, not two, but 24 Convair B36s. It's a 10 engine, 200 and uh, what, 260 foot wingspan. Uh, it can fly for 60 hours unrefueled, nonstop, anywhere in the world, pretty much. And it was our global deterrent at the time. And that, that right there uh, got me you know, into the, the bug of airplanes and machines. And it's, it's almost like the Steve Martin, John Candy movie, Plane, Trains, and Automobiles. And I love them all. I have a, you know, I have a fast car. I have a, you'll do 185 miles an hour off the showroom floor. And, uh, but it's a Chevy. I can get it fixed almost anywhere. I have myself a Grand Sport Corvette. Nice. Uh, and uh, I just, I love machines. And there's the ultimate machine that I've ever had the honor and the privilege of climbing all over and, and touching almost every square inch of it is the Blackbird. For people that are not aware of like the specifications and the mission of the Blackbird, can you give us a little bit of a rundown on that? Um, I'm familiar with it because I'm a former military guy. And by the time I was like two years old, I was in an airplane. My dad was a pilot. He, you know, retired from United. He was a crew chief in Vietnam on Hueys and uh, was shot down and went back three times. <laughs> he couldn't get enough of it, I guess. But, uh, you know, so I've always been around aircraft and things like that. And I've also been very much fascinated with skunk works and that's our 71. But for those of you, those people out there that just are not familiar with it, can you explain a little bit about it? In uh, 1958, uh, the CIA and the Air Force realized that their premier spy plane, which is the U-2 spy plane, uh, Gary Powers was shot down on um, May 1st, 1960, and he was, he was destined to be shot down. That was all part of the plan. But they, had, they needed a replacement for the U-2. The U-2 is a, is a subsonic, it's a jet-powered glider. They had one flame out over central Russia and it, and it, it was able to glide over a thousand miles. Uh, be, you know, it, you know, it got, it got out of harm's way that way. So the, uh, uh, my, my passion for all things Blackbird really started on uh, March, March 13th, 1964. And I've, uh, it is, it was conceived by, the CIA working with Lockheed and also they were working with uh, General Dynamics on Kingfisher or Kingfish. Both of them were Mach 3 to Mach 4, which is three times or four times the speed of sound. So you're looking at anywhere from 2000 miles an hour to about 2400 miles an hour, flying between 90 and 120,000 feet, uh, unrefueled range at you know, at least 3000 nautical miles. And this was you know, this was 
11 years after Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in a rocket-powered airplane, the, X, the Bell X-1, and Lockheed was, was tasked to de- design an airplane, as, as did uh, you know, Victor Dosen there at uh, General Dynamics Fort Worth. It was Condor back then. And the uh, contract was awarded in September 1959 to build initially uh, 15 CIA uh, A-12s. And the A-12 is, stands for article, doesn't stand for attack. And this thing was a, an airplane that was a single, a single place, just a pilot. There's a camera behind the, behind the pilot, which weighed about 830 pounds. The airplane is 103 feet long. It weighs, maximum gross weight, about 130,000 pounds. It is a wingspan of 58 feet. And it can move through the air at uh, two miles every three seconds or 43 miles a minute. And on its retirement flight in March 1990, SR-71, which is a derivative of the original CIA A-12, on its retirement flight, flew from LA to Washington, D.C. in an hour and four minutes. And everybody said, wow, that's incredible. And I said, not as incredible as it could have been because Ben Rich told me that when they filled up, when they hooked up with the tanker off the coast of LA to start the speed run, the fuel gauges malfunctioned, which was not unusual. So they didn't know if they had a full load of fuel. So they took it easy from LA to, to Cincinnati, no, from LA to St. Louis. And in St. Louis, the gas gauges, all of a sudden they, they came up, they realized they had a, a, adequate fuel. So they, they firewalled everything. And they went from St. Louis to Cincinnati in eight minutes. <laughs> and Ben Rich told me that if if they would have been able to firewall it for the entire run, they would have gone on its retirement flight from L.A. to Washington, D.C. in 40, 45 to 46 minutes on its retirement flight. And this is 1991. Correction, 1990. So, um, and it was really ironic. I gave a talk on the history of the Blackbirds at Beale here last uh, April, this last April, this year. My thought was, why would they want me to come in and talk about the Blackbird? That was its home for, for 25 years. Then I realized it hasn't flown in 30, <laughs> actually 32 years. So the, the, uh, the A-12 and the SR-71 Blackbird were designed for one purpose, and that was for aerial reconnaissance over denied airspace. And at between 85 and 90,000 feet, and that's where they flew, and they flew at Mach 3.2. They can get up to Mach 3.3, but that requires written permission from the wing commander. Uh, the airplane was designed to outrun surface-to-air missiles. And on the 27th, 28th, and 29th of October, 1967, 19, yeah, 67, uh, Danny Sullivan flew over Hanoi Haipong on uh, their first mission over North Vietnam. They were flying out of Kadena, Okinawa. And uh, the air field over Thailand came back 43 minutes later and Pat made another pass over it, Hanoi Haipong. Well, it really irritated the North Vietnamese and the Russian advisors and the Chinese advisors. So he said, we gotta, we get, we're, we'll be waiting for him next time he comes through. So the following day, uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't Denny Sullivan that was flying. I think it was... Uh, uh, Frank Murray, 
And uh, he went the exact same time, exact same route, same return time, 43 minutes later. And this really, this really pissed off the, uh, the North Vietnamese. So they sent uh, guys out in the field. They dug parabolic trenches and sat there with uh, big things in their ears with a field telephone. And they knew where the track was because it was booming on, uh, on, you know, all the way you know, across. And they could see if they looked up high enough, they could see the contrail. So they, uh, they were ready for Denny when he came back on the 29th. And, they, and, the, and the Blackbird guys had been complaining to, to scheduling uh, you know, the uh, Strategic Reconnaissance Support Center. And they said, we cannot fly the same mission two or three days in a row because they're going to know what our track is and going to be ready for us. So on the, uh, on the 29th, uh, Denny is coming back. He took off, flew over Hanoi. They knew that he was going to be coming back 43 minutes later, and they were ready for him. And they launched. Uh, Den- Denny said it was about 50 SAMs were launched at him. And at 90,000 feet, there's like four tenths of a percent of the atmosphere. Uh, Surface to air missile, the original SA 2 SAMs uh, are boost glide. So you have to go from approximately sea level to 90,000 feet. And this thing is flying through the air at 43 miles a minute. So you only have about five seconds to, to realize it's up there to lock, try to lock on and fire everything you have. And the security people had uh, during briefing said the SA-2s can't get above 70,000 feet, but there's a periscope on the Blackbirds. All of them have it primarily to look for contrail. And Denny was looking at the periscope and, and he's seeing He's seeing surface-to-air missile things going above him and detonating. And when he landed at Kadena, he was you know, he was really pissed because you know they threw a lot of stuff at him, and it was it was only pure luck that he wasn't shot down. And because of there's almost no air up there, overpressure can't damage the airplane. You have to hit it, and that was the problem. If it had been if it had been down to 30, 35,000 feet, just the overpressure from the explosion would have damaged and possibly brought the airplane down. But it, but it didn't. But when, once he got back to Kadena after his mission, they did a post-flight. They found some damage on the inboard uh, leading edge of, uh, I think it was the left wing. And they sent the, the composite panel to CIA. They did an analysis of what caused the damage. And they said it's a fusing mechanism off an SA-2 surface-to-air missile. So Danny Sullivan, uh, and he just passed away. Uh, he retired as a brigadier general. Uh, is the highest flying pilot ever to sustain flak damage. And uh, it's just, but it was designed to overfly restricted airspace uh, with the shoot down of Francis Gary Powers. Uh, you know, that uh, ensured it's, it, it was going forward. And one, one of the reasons I said earlier that uh, Powers getting shot down was part of the plan. There are a number of Congress critters. I can't call them congressmen or women because they don't qualify for that. But they they uh, uh, they want. They said we're well, spending two billion dollars developing uh, the Oxcar program, the A12 program, the CIA sponsored Blackbird program, and to have something that goes through the air as fast as it did. And the program name was Oxcart. It's kind of a give kind of a chuckle. And they were they were concerned that that money could be spent elsewhere. And the only way you said, well, we have we have a, a reconnaissance platform that's overflying the Soviet Union at will. That was the U-2. They're flying on a uh, was it Peshawar, uh, pa- no, Pakistan. 
And I said, why do we need a replacement for something? They can fly over the Soviet Union any day of the week. Well, uh, it turns out that the high altitude relight system was sabotaged there in, in uh, Peshawar. And uh, they had a, you know, normally they would, the pilot that was scheduled to fly that flight doesn't fly the alternate backup airplane will come, will come in with the backup pilot. But Powers insisted that, no, I, I've been briefed on what has to be shot, you know, you know, where I have to go and everything else. So I'll take it up. And he, he was over central Russia when he had a flame out, which wasn't unusual, but with the malfunctioning uh, hydrogen, gaseous hydrogen restart system, he had to come down to about 35,000 feet to relight. He just relit his engine and he's on his way up. So he's going on a, a, about a 30 to 40 degree angle of attack going up. And a surface-to-air missile blew up right behind him and broke its elevators. And those are the control surfaces on the horizontal stabilizer, the tail. And he lost control of the airplane. The, one of the wings broke off. The, you know, this, I'm not, not tail feathers, but one of his, you know, his 80-foot-long wingspan broke half of it, broke off. So he's pinwheeling down. He opens the canopy to jump out because they didn't have ejection seat by, back then that caused weight. They wanted that thing to be as light as possible. And he got thrown out of the airplane, but he's still attached to his oxygen hose and the communication line. He had to pull himself back into the U-2 to disconnect his uh, uh, hoses and, and uh, lines, thrown clear. And I talked to his roommate. That's the only reason I know, you know what happened, because his roommate was the guy who recovered him when they made the, the, the spy swap. And Powers, you know, John said that Powers, when he when he landed in this field, some old uh, Russian farmer was ready to run him through with his pitchfork because he thought he was an alien from outer space because he had his flight suit on and his helmet and everything else. And said that was the scariest part of the whole part of the mission. And he spent 15 months there. But one of the terms and conditions of Powers' release was a cessation of all manned overflights over the Soviet Union and its allies. And that's what created the, they called the little Blackbird, the D-21 drone. And it was a Mach 3.6, 3.8, 100,000 foot. And it was designed to overfly the Soviet Union and China. Uh, it had four operational missions, uh, none of them successful. Uh, and it's just, uh, the whole thing was, was veiled in secrecy and it's just, it's one of the coolest things ever, you know, ever that I've ever been involved in. And I, and I'm even to this day, I'm not sure how all the stars aligned and everything else that uh, brought me to this point, but I have, uh, uh, I love the airplane. I love the skunk works. I'm real familiar with area 51. I've been at the fence line at Tonopah test range and at area 51 over 80 different on 80 different occasions over the last 40 years. Um, I just lost a very dear friend of mine, John Lear. He just passed away in you know, this last March 30th. Uh, I thought he wasn't going to make it through 2015. He was in such bad shape. He'd been in three plane crashes and he was, both his feet were just destroyed. Uh, this is when he was a kid. Um, he still holds, he's, yeah, on his death, he still held 15 world records for flying around the world uh, solo in his dad's Learjet. 
and no one's been able to you know, beat him on that. And because of uh, my friendship with John Lear, I met Bob Lazar before he went to work out in the desert. And before he went to work out in the desert, Bob, you couldn't put a gun to Bob Lazar's head and convince him that UFOs were real. And uh, he, he changed quite a bit over in a year, over a year's time from when I first met him to when he was a silhouetted uh, voice altered uh, person named Jared that was being interviewed by another friend of mine, George Now. So I've, uh, I've been a friend of Bob for 35, what, 34 years, 33 years. Uh, he's who he says he is. But I've had a, I've had a love affair with uh, Area 51, with things that go bump in the night, with uh, the Lockheed Skunk Works. They have a, an incredible group of people there. But this last June, I mentioned I had my 75 years of the Skunk Works book, which came out last summer. And Lockheed bought, I think, three dozen books. And I went in and had a book signing at the Skunk Works. And I spent two and a half hours with Jeff Babion, who was the vice president and general manager of the Skunk Works. Uh, he's since retired. But he said his favorite books in the whole wide world are my Blackbird book from Sheffer and my uh, 75 years from uh, Osprey. And, they're, uh, and if anybody listening to this one, you know, interest in the, interested in the book, it's available on Amazon. You're just going to have to pay extra for the shipping because it weighs about six pounds. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, uh, I cover 43 programs, and there's probably 43 programs I don't know about. But I had a chance to spend two and a half hours with Jeff. And we're heading over to the U2 operation after he gave me a tour of uh, areas he could of the Skunk Works. I have a picture of me standing on the work platform for the X-59, which is the sonic boom test aircraft that uh, will fly, I think, later this year, maybe early next year. As we're heading over to site two where the U-2s are, we're back of the limousine. And I, I look Jeff right in the eye. My, you know, I'm about two, two and a half feet from him. I'm looking right in his eyes. Okay, I said, okay, Jeff, what alien technology is being utilized in today's Skunk Works airplanes? And he looked, I mean, he looked me straight back in the eye. If he'd been a politician, I'd have known him in a lion SOB, but he's not, he's not a politician. He's an engineer. He looked me straight, straight in the eye and said, Jim, I am not aware of any alien technology that's utilized in any program that Lockheed has built or designed. He said, it doesn't mean that something was, was created before I got here. And it's, and it's so deeply black, I, I really have no need to know. He said, my primary job is to look forward, not to look to my past. But that's one of the reasons he, he enjoys my Skunk Works book, because it does give a glimpse into Lockheed Skunk Works past and the 43 programs that I cover. So, I mean, he looked at me, he said, said you know, I'm a firm believer. I, I, I can't imagine that we're the only ones. He said, but Lock, the, the official policy of Lockheed Martin is there's no comment on uh, things that go bump in the night or things you can't explain. It's just... And I had nothing to say. Jim, I got so, a question for you. Sure. Of, of the stuff that you have. So the great thing, and, and you've been at it so much longer than me, but one of the things I've enjoyed most over the last couple of years doing interviews along with host, hosting interviews is getting people who are in the know about uh, stuff that like, hey, I can't tell you this on air, but I'll tell you off air. And the amount of stuff that I think probably 
even I've learned, I mean, I, what you've learned in as much time as you've had in with the, with the groups you've traveled in of what you've heard over the years and granted, you probably maybe even included in some of your writings, but is there anything that you were surprised about that was not revealed, but you were able to talk about it later? Or is there anything just coming that you haven't been able to talk about that's been in your head? Well, no, I, I don't keep anything to myself. Because if I drop if I drop over dead tomorrow, what I have kept in my brain because it's so special is lost. So um, there's when I find out something, there's a few people that I make sure that they know what I found out. And I haven't found out that much, but I I uh, I get you know Michael Schrat is a very dear friend of mine, and you know I share everything I know with him, uh, and we were on last night. Yeah, we were on last night for Michael was only on for about uh, 45 minutes and he had to go. But no, I share I share everything that I do with the world because it does me no good. I'm not in this for fame and fortune. My God, I said, uh, uh, I can't tell you how much money I spent on on transportation, on food, on lodging, on on computers and cameras. Yep. (laughs) And and it's, you know, if you broke down what I got paid per hour for all the books, my 29 books that I have, actually yep. only 28 of them are published. The 29th, I'm waiting for the Navy to get back to me on. And, uh, but if you broke down, I maybe make two, maybe three cents an hour. If I'm that's lucky. That's good money. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But you know, again, I, I do it because it's, this is a love affair and it's a passion of mine and I'm right. blessed. I'm blessed with a very good memory. I'm blessed to have access to people that I don't know how it became on Ben Rich's good list. I don't know how I became on Jack Gordon, who was the president of the Skunk Works, or Sher Mullen, who was the president of the Skunk Works, or Jeff Babion, who was the equivalent of the president, but they don't have that title anymore. It's vice president, general manager of the Skunk Works, and Ben Rich. I mean, Ben and I talked once a quarter for 25 years. Or you're giving them good free PR at, you know, two cents an hour. Yes. You know, with those books and uh, everything. And just so everybody knows, if you're uh, wondering if we had Michael Shrett on this podcast, we did. He actually was our season two opener. So if anybody's interested in uh, listening to that episode, you can find um, Michael's interview with us back at episode one, season two. So, and that was amazing. And I did take some of his artwork because he did a presentation for us. That was absolutely phenomenal. The guy is, is out of this world. He's the best there is. He is. He's probably one of the best researchers and, you know, he just puts it out there. There's no personal opinion or anything like that. He will, he'll just present you with what he finds. And I did put, um, our YouTube up with that interview and then interlaced some of his photographs out of his book with his permission on YouTube. So you can actually go watch that presentation when he's talking about a certain craft and they're trying to cut into it. I did put the artwork up that he had commissioned to um, demonstrate how that was being done by the witnesses that were there and things like that. So if anybody wants to check that out, that is available. Yeah, the other thing uh, when it comes to Michael Shrat, and I've known Michael for about 25 years, and he's like my kid. And I talk to him at least you know, two or three times a week, and I have for the last 10 or 15 years. 
And he doesn't interject his own opinion. He's like Sergeant Friday from Dragnet. Dragnet days. He, you know, this is the, I want the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And that's what he presents. And he just spent, I was going to go out and visit him, but with gas the way it was, I didn't really want to, uh, I have another couple of road trips you know, planned. So I had to just back off that, but he spent three days in Roswell. He went to their archives and he scanned over 10,000 sets of documents and they're going to be, they're going to be available online once he gets it all organized. And he's just, he has the best research. He, he has over a hundred four drawer filing cabinets filled. He has 200 and I think he had 231 or 232 three wing binders of the eight inch thick three wing binders that are filled with illustrations and uh, supporting documents. He has a book that came out. It's called Dark, uh, Dark Files, uh, a pictorial history of lost, forgotten and obscure UFO encounters. It's available on Amazon and it's, uh, I think it's $27, but he covers, I think, I think he said 60 some odd programs or, or events. These are actual events. Uh, he has full color illustrations along with the supporting documents. And it's book one. He could probably do a hundred books. And I, I, I'm the one who, I, I'm the one who pushed him hard on this, uh, that he had to do it. And he's very pleased with it. And he has a, uh, he has a YouTube channel. It's blue room media. So you go to YouTube, go Blue Room Media, and uh, he usually covers three or four uh, historical events per, you know, per session. And he, and he has been doing them uh, four or five a week. So he's, and this is, his entire world revolves around retrieving information and tracking people down. And he's, uh, and he's the only one who's doing it. I did it for 45 years, 50 years. Yeah, I'm 77. I have bad knees. I have a fast car that I can get me places. Uh, but there, there's, I need, there has to be some young blood go out there and snoop on the government. Uh, you need, people need, need to uh, push our government to demand, you know, demand answers to things. And they're not. And it's, uh, I, I, I don't want, I don't, you know, with, if, if something were happened to Michael, there's no one, there's no one that's following his footsteps. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people that would like to say that they are, but in reality, I don't, I don't think so. Not to the quality that Michael does. It's just amazing. Michael makes a presentation on an event. You're going to see uh, full illustrations of what it, you know, what the, uh, you know, first person uh, witness, eyewitnesses saw. He'll recreate that based on their notes or based on their, you know, he, he him interviewing them. And he just, he does a, he does a complete, uh, has a complete package on these, these events. Now, one thing he's going to start working on with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer is there are over 180 identified crash retrievals starting, you know, at 19, uh, I think the earliest one was before World War II. So it was early 41 or early 40 that they've recovered crashed saucers and crashed sites. 
and he's he's going in that uh, with both feet. And he said, you know, the the problem that he's running that he's run into, and, and all of us are running into it, is uh, we're beaten we're beaten being beaten by the Grim Reaper, people who experienced this stuff back in the '40s and '50s and '60s. They're at their end. They're at the end. You know, they're into their time on this planet. And uh, so it's it's important that anybody who's who uh, in your audience that may be listening to this, if you have firsthand knowledge, uh, you know, get yeah, you know, get hold of somebody. Yeah, you know, get on uh, your your site. Get on Michael Schrantz's site. Get on um, Mufon or whatever. But let it be known because we need you know, we 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 need. We need people to, I think a lot of people backed away from the UFO, uh, talking about UFOs because they were ridiculed. And now, now it's mainstream. It's, it's no longer, you're no longer an idiot for uh, believing in UFOs. Now, like I said earlier, I, Ben Rich and I were like pen pals, but we used telephone versus writing letters. And just before Ben passed away, he was at USC Medical Center he was dying from esophageal cancer at being around all the nasty solvents associated with low observable stealth coatings. And it was about 10 days before he died. And I called him up to see how he was doing. And I just received his, uh, the book that he wrote with Leo's, Leo Janos, you know, my time at the skunk works. And we we're talking about friends and other things. And he said, and then we finally got, got around to uh, things that go bump in the night. He said, Jim, we have things out in the desert. This is quoting Ben Rich as he spoke to me. He said, Jim, we have things out in the desert that's 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. Not what you think you can build in 50 years, but what you can comprehend. And I can comprehend a hell of a lot. I have quite an imagination. He said, if you've seen movies like Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. I said, Ben, you want to... to, uh, continue on that and he said no and he had the nerve to die on me 10 days later so i was i was really disappointed can you give us some more evidence other than that i mean come on can you point to where the aliens are man yeah well s4 (laughs) yeah that's what what bob said he was and uh this gentleman who was the facility manager there for five years and i uh, he asked you guys that were still working out there do you ever recall uh, seeing or hearing of a guy named Bob Lazar on the, you know, flying on the black and whites, the Janet flights from McCarran into Area 51. He said two or three guys said, "Yeah, it's, I remember. I remember. I remember the name. I saw it on the manifest." So, and there is a there is a place called S4. There's the, the the facility manager saw equipment designated came into Area 51, unloaded off an aircraft. And then truck to another another location somewhere there, you know, close to Area 51, which would could be S4. So uh, the, the stuff is out there. It's but, but the, another thing when you, in uh, right after he retired, this had to be 93, 92, 93 time frame. He was at a, he was a keynote speaker at UCLA. It was the Aeronautical School. Uh, postgraduate uh, uh, conference and he got up here as a keynote speaker. And at the very end, basically he said, we have the ability today to take ET home. 
now think about that statement for a second. We have now this is nine, this is 30 years ago. 30 years ago. So we have the ability to take ET home. But our government, it's buried so deep into our government and black programs, our government will not release that information. And he, he found it very frustrating. And that's and that's what he told me. And then three years later, just before he died, or four years later, just before he died, is what he said. Yeah, we have things out in the out in the desert that's 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. So the stuff is out there. Uh, there's too many people. The the gentleman that was the facility manager at Area 51 is a it was a retired lieutenant colonel, SR 71 pilot named Dave Fruhoff. And Dave Fruhoff in early late 71, early 72 timeframe, he chased a UFO in an SR 71 and left him in the dust. Now, this is before anything that was, uh, you know, super fast or whatever it is. Uh, the, the only thing out there that could match the speed of an SR-71 is the CIA version of the A-12 Blackbird. That was, that was it. And Dave was on a night training mission out of Kadena, Okinawa. This is when the Vietnam War was still hot and heavy. He's going straight. There's a three-quarter moon off his left-hand side. He's at 78,000 feet at Mach 2.7. And all of a sudden he gets, something catches his eye and he looks off to the right side of, of the SR-71 and he said about five or six miles off to his right and three to 5,000, maybe 6,000 feet above him was a, an, a, a craft that was reflective. He's getting glints off a three-quarter moon is reflecting off the surface of this craft. He couldn't make out the shape because the, the glare of the instruments inside the cockpit was, was too great. And he didn't want to open his visor to see it without, you know, without the visor, without the, you know, the problem with the glare. So he gets on, he gets on the radio and he, he contacts Kadena, Okinawa, the command post on secure voice and wanted to know if we had another SR-71 up. And he said, no, you were, in, you were at the briefing. You're the only one up. He said, okay, I'm going to get take a closer look. So he, he, he advances the throttles. Now at Mach 2.7 at, at uh, 78,000 feet, the airplane is an absolute minimum afterburner. The Blackbird loves to fly fast. And it flies within about 98% of its of its uh, mission envelope is, is considered, that's its operational uh, envelope. It doesn't have much margin. So Mach 3.2 is almost as fast as it, a Blackbird can go. They've gone to Mach 3.43. There's been some uh, rumbling saying, no, we've gone to Mach, you know, Mach 3.5. I know an A-12 went Mach 3.56, which is 2,391 miles an hour in 1963. It was A-12 number 128, and it was flown by Jim Eastham. And he was trying to, he was trying to, it was envelope expansion uh, airframe. And he was trying to get he was trying to get, uh, get up to Mach three, and he was having a, a real real hard time, and he was in bad air, and so he dropped the nose, and when he dropped the nose, he redlined everything, and immediately, when it you know started hitting back to the farm, so to speak, and when they took the instrumentations out, you know, all the tapes and whatever, they figured that for maybe fifteen or twenty seconds he was at Mach three point five six. 
but the airplane, the airplane will blow out the inlets above Mach 3.33. You know, you run the risk of having a single or dual unstart and that will make you, uh, empty your bowels. <laughs> it's pretty violent. Lou shock. The first time it happened to Lou, the, it, one engine would go on unstart and the airplane would yaw real hard to one side. Then, then the other engine would go into unstart that one, the, the one that went under unstart restarted. So the airplane is going back and forth. It was banging his head so hard. It broke his faceplate, which means if he had to bail out, he was dead man. And the only reason he was able to, to recover, he's one who designed the layout for the cockpit he, he's holding the stick with one, one hand. He put his hand on the instrument panel and worked his way down until he found the switches for the manual extension of the inlet cones. Those things moved back 26 inches. And he, he made them all go full forward. That's, you know, that stopped the dual unstart. It created both engines unstart. It was like hitting a brick wall. And uh, he was able to recover the aircraft. His backseater did mess his pants. It scared him. He thought he, he thought he, the airplane was coming apart. So, uh, but Dave, uh, Dave said that when he started getting close to this UFO, this unidentified thing, whatever it was, uh, when he was still a thousand or two feet, a thousand or two uh, below this craft and still a mile or two away, this thing took off at about a 30 degree angle of attack and left him in the dust like he was heading the other direction. He figured it left him at about eight to 10,000 miles an hour. And he lost sight of it between 180 and 200,000 feet. So that's 1972. So in 1980, uh, uh, he retired from the Air Force and he got a job as facility manager at Area 51. So after he, he waited, he waited a while because you don't ask a lot of questions when you first get there. But he but he knew most of the guys that were there because you work in the real spooky programs. It's a very, very small community, whether you're working at you know, McDonnell Douglas, Lockheed, Grumman uh, at the time. Uh, uh, you know, any of those companies, Boeing, you know, those guys, the guys that work on the real spooky stuff are a handful of, you know, of very, very special people. So after he was after he was there for uh, uh, about a year, he started asking questions, and he, he finally was at, he was at the club one night, and he said to a buddy of his, he said, "Did we ever flight test an airplane here that could outrun an SR seventy one? I said, "I'm talking about back in the early seventies." He said, "No, it wasn't flown out of here." So it was it was uh, Dave's response to when I asked him. He said, "Do you believe in UFOs?" And that was the story he gave me. So are UFOs real? Yes, they are. Uh, are they alien? I would have to say not all of them, but all it has to be is one. Yeah. And I know Jared's of the opinion of the not aliens. It's, it's us kind of a thing, but I did want to jump back to something that you said, Jim. And that was, um, when you talk about ridicule and, and people getting their stories out there and now it's become kind of mainstream and things here in Michigan, we experienced the, the dreadful 1966 project blue book swamp gas incident, which is a joke that has permeated the whole UFO and now UAP culture as a joke. And, and here in Michigan, we've had all kinds of, 
UFO sightings and things that have gone on. And as far as I know, we don't have any test ranges and things like that for any kind of secret aircraft. But what I do know in, um, I'll give a shout out to Ray Samansky on his book, uh, Swamp Gas My Ass, and, <laughs> and uh, where he details about how Michigan was a base for um, tactical nuclear weapons that were to be fired off of fighter jets if Russian military aircraft decided to come over the North Pole and drop nuclear bombs here in Michigan and down through the States, one of the tactics was to take these nuclear missiles on these fighters and launch them from the air national guard bases here. And they would basically as a hail Mary launch these nuclear tipped missiles off of these jets and try to blow up the squadron of fighters in the air or the bombers in the air. Um, using, you know, nuclear detonation, you know, you get your EMF plus the whole nuclear thing, but it was like a kind of like a Hail Mary last minute kind of a thing that they would try to do. Are you familiar with the 1966 thing that went on here? And no, but I'm familiar with using a a nuclear warhead to stop a Soviet uh, bomber formation. The, uh, there were three man blackbirds, the A-12, which was CIA. They had actually had nine airframes. You had uh, two, two, two additional ones were modified to be drone carriers. Those are the M, MD-21s. There's only one example left, and that's at the Museum of Flight in Seattle. Was that the big drone that sits in the back be, be, uh, between the yes. uh, vertical stabilizers? Correct. It's about okay. a 50-foot-long Mach 4 spy plane. And that was that was built and designed to overfly the Soviet Union in China uh, because the terms and conditions of Gary Powers release was the cessation of all manned overflights of the Soviet Union and its allies. So we needed an unmanned system and that. But there was, uh, you know, they built 38 D-21 drones. These were unmanned. They were baby blackbirds. Uh, there, you know, there's several museums around, you know, around the country. Uh, you go to the Air Force Museum at Wright Path. They have a D-21. Uh, of course, the Museum of Flight, and, and most most of the places that have uh, blackbirds may may have a D-21 as well. The, uh, you know, the uh, the program was was initiated uh, as a uh, stopgap because satellites weren't uh, weren't all that hot. And Kelly Johnson, even though even though uh, they had four launches over the former Soviet Union, correction, over China, not the Soviet Union, over China, uh, and they didn't get any, anything back that was usable, Kelly Johnson referred to the D-21 program, which was called Tagboard, as his most successful failure. He said, you know, we, we matched state-of-the-art airframe and propulsion systems with 1940s electrical uh, relays and stuff like that. I mean, the electronics were were ancient. The airframe and the propulsion were state of the art, and to you know to marry the two was a real challenge. So it was, you know, they had uh, there seventeen of the thirty eight airframes were left. Uh, one of them doesn't have any leading edges. All the composite were damaged, and that's sitting here at Davis Month. And and um, there's still a couple. There's still a couple D twenty ones here. Plus, the air, plus there's a, still a couple at uh, NASA, uh, Dryden or NASA Armstrong now. So that's just a unique, 
And it was at the time they were working on the D21 program. It was called Tag Board. It was more classified than the Manhattan Project that was that built and designed the first uh, atomic bomb. So it was, and I'm the only one who's ever written anything on it. Uh, World Air Power. I did a. I think there was there's second or third. Uh, uh, volume i have a, a thing on uh, hiding hiding in the shadow of black i think is the name, name of the uh, article and it's eighteen thousand words and photos that have never been published on the program and it, you know, it came from me so that's stuff i like to do but there's of all the stuff that's being seen around the world nowadays, one of the, one of the big things, and you mentioned earlier, is is something that has been referred to as the TR3B. It's a, it's a that makes me angry. Because <laughs> right. every, every time that somebody says that they've seen, including my wife and I, who've seen a flying triangle here very close to Detroit, it was very low to the ground, basically hovering, silent, three glowing orbs, you know, one in each corner. And the thing had to be 250 to 300 feet across and did not make a sound and it could rotate in place. I mean, just crazy. And every time I get these debunkers that will go, well, that's just the TR3B. That's just the TR3B. And you being the expert, you know, I was like, if there's anybody that knows anything about what this thing is or supposed to be, because what I found on it to me, it doesn't, it doesn't jive with what people, especially here in Michigan with these giant triangles are seeing and the capabilities. The real big ones, I I would have to be believe they're not from us, but there are quite a number of, uh, cell phone videos of TR3Bs, if they have formation lights, if they have a red and green light on the tips, that's, I got to believe that's man-made. You know, they, we, even though you're building something spooky, the F-117, which was our first operational stealth fighter, it has, you know, red and green uh, uh, lights. They don't turn them on during combat. The B-2, uh, it, it retracts its formation lights uh, when it goes into combat and it's a little diamond shape uh, top to it. And it just comes out of the wing and that that's your formation lights. Uh, so if, if it, if it appears to have flashing red or green you know, tips, more than likely it is a, and I'd have to say without question, it's man-made, but it's the ones that, that, aren't the huge ones. I mean, there was one that was uh, videotaped over Sholo, Arizona. Uh, Sholo is uh, not that far from where uh, Travis, uh, where Travis Walton had, was abducted. And he's from Snowflake, Arizona, which is just right up the road from uh, Sholo. It's at 7,000 feet out in, in altitude. But Doc Skinner sent me a video uh, he said, is, is there anything you can do with this? And I said, well, I'll, I'll give it a try. And I started you know, changing the contrast, doing a bunch of other stuff. And this thing was a mile long. And it was, I mean, it was, it wasn't an optical illusion. I mean, it, you know, it was, as it passed in, passed behind trees, it was, you know, it was blocked out from the trees. Uh, there were, I mean, but it, this thing was huge. And they, it was the only seat on a side view 
it wasn't seen at the bottom, you know, from the from people who were look, looking at it. And there's so many people out there that never look up. When I, you know, I, I live here in the north of Tucson, we don't have any city lights here. So when, when, you know, when the sun goes down and if the, if the yard lights are turned off, it is dark. And I go out there every night with my dog and just, you know, sit there and watch the sky. And as much, as much as I've been out in the desert looking for UFOs and same, you know, same here, uh, I, I have to admit, I have never seen anything I couldn't, just, I, I couldn't figure out. And that, and that pleases me and disappoints me at the same time. Because I really, I, I, mean, I, can, I can remember, I, this had to be like 92 or 93. I'm over at Tippecoo Valley, due east area 51. I'm by the black mailbox. It's just a sliver of the moon. It's and there isn't a cloud in the sky, and it's you know it's the, the, just a real light, you know, faint glow of uh, twilight. And I'm standing there, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, these. It's been said that the aliens could read your mind. They could, you know, tele, telepathy, tele, tele, yeah, telepathy. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm concentrating as hard as I can. I said, okay, I'm here. I have my Nikon in hand abduct me i want to be abducted <laughs> but let me bring let me let me I, let me bring <laughs> yeah if you had a colonoscopy it's, you know, it, it can't be any any worse than what what the aliens do to you so i've had you know half a dozen of those so uh so i'm there you know thinking real hard abduct me abduct abduct me and nothing nothing but i know they're there i know we're not alone i was a We'll get to the TR3B again in a second, but I was a docent at Kitt Peak National Observatories outside of Tucson. It's the largest collection of optical telescopes in the world. They have 22 optical telescopes with the primary mirror. The smallest one is just used for the, the public to, to night, use some night view, and it's a 12-inch primary mirror. But the biggest one up there is the Mayall. It's four meters. It's 13 feet across, and it weighs, this mirror weighs 30,000 pounds. And it's, uh, it's ground to within a millionth of an inch of being a perfect parabolic reflector. Uh, but I was a docent. I, you know, I went in there and I was, my job was to you know, give them a tour of four of the, the significant telescopes. And one of them was the 2.1 meter telescope. And, and 2.1 meters is about eight feet. So it has an eight foot primary mirror. And the 2.1 was used by, remotely by Caltech using adaptive optics optics looking for exoplanets they for five years uh using the 2.1 meter telescope with adaptive optics the they would they would shoot when they were when they were starting to do their observations they would shoot up a uh, ultraviolet laser beam and it exactly is 18 miles that thing has to be x number of uh, centimeters across the beam and it's and it's monitored and adjusted 1,200 times a second, and there's a uh, the, the mirror that goes into the you know the spectrograph is a, is uh, adjustable. There 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 are uh, actuators underneath that actually deform the mirror, and it has pretty close to the same resolution from Earth as this the Hubble Space Telescope does in the, uh, uh, in space. 
and the, the air over Southern uh, Arizona is uh, turbulent free and f- pretty much free of dust. So it's a, it's a great, great place. And the, the mountain, the mountaintop is at, you know, just under 7,000 feet. But just before I uh, quit volunteering up there, we had a gathering of all the astronomers, all the, the uh, telescope technicians and all the docents were asked to come down to what they called an NOAO, it's the, the National Optical Astronomy Observatories. <clears throat> and it's headquartered at the University of Arizona here in Tucson. And so is the mirror lab, the, the lab that makes all the really big mirrors for telescopes. And they had the, uh, it was a beer and pizza, and they had a, uh, the keynote, uh, the head of the Astronomy Department, National Science Foundation, and he had just returned from a, confer- a worldwide conference of all the astronomers around the world that are studying and looking for exoplanets. And based on uh, proven mathematical formulas and based on all the information from all these you know, hundreds of uh, you know, telescopes that have been looking for exoplanets around the world, they came to the conclusion that for every star in the universe, there's one and a half planets. Now you can't cram that number in your head. Yeah, you can't even cram the decimal points in there because they're just or the, the commas. They're just, it's such a huge, huge number. And again, based on proven mathematical calculations and formulas, they calculate that there are two billion, that's with a B, two billion Earth-like planets orbiting a similar size brown dwarf star as our sun in the inhabitable zone with liquid water. And to quote Jodie Foster in Carl Sagan's movie, Contact, if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. So are UFOs real? Absolutely. To think that we're the only ones would be, would be silly. We're an insignificant solar system in an insignificant galaxy in an insignificant corner of the, of the universe. And people, we've only, we're only 4 billion years old, our galaxy. The universe is, you know, 13.6, 13.8 billion years old. Now, one of the things that the University of Arizona has done they, at the Mirror Lab, they're building a new, multi, multiple new telescopes in Chile. Uh, they're 200 miles from the nearest city, so you don't have any light pollution. It's one of the driest places on the planet. And the telescopes are being built on top of a 16,000-foot mountain. So they're way, way up there. And I'm, I'm sure everybody that's the technicians that were working up there and the construction people all had, were all on oxygen. They would have to be. The, uh, uh, it's called the Giant Magellan Telescope. It will utilize seven 27-foot diameter mirrors, all focused on one secondary mirror. And they figure they will be able to look back in time to within 100,000 years of first light. That's when the first star decided to nuclear fusion began. That's incredible. Hey, everyone. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors and some friends of the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Chris Lato of the Chris Lato YouTube channel, retired F-16 pilot turned UAP investigator, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What is up, you guys? It's your girl, Gemma Jade, from Gemma Jade YouTube, Moonbear Oracle, Paranormal Chop Shop, and Spaced Out Radio After Hours Show. You're here listening to Wayne and Michelle with the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Jared Murphy of NotAliens.com, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle from Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. What's up, everyone? This is Burton and Aaron from Lost in the Dark Podcast. And raise your horns because you're listening to Wayne and Michelle from the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hi, this is Seth Talk from MUFON and the author of You Have the Right to Talk to Aliens and the host of Alien Spirit TV with Sev on YouTube. You're listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hey there, it's Richard Serrett, occasional weekend guest host of Coast to Coast AM and host of The Conspiracy Show. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle's Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hi, this is Terry Lane Keel, Director of MUFON Memberships, Investigator, Demonologist, and Author of Alien Healing, The True Story of a Benevolent Extraterrestrial. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Schrett, military aerospace historian and private pilot. And you are listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. And we're glad to have you with us today. Hi, this is Alex Nowitzki, and you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What I'd like to show you guys is the infinite pool of experience and awareness. 
which can be found at luciuslabs.com. And it's a book that I've written after basically meditating for 27 years. Basically, it goes over modern physics. It takes you all the way from modern accepted physics to understanding that we live in a layering of conscious types within time and that our consciousness is eternal. Not sure what they're going to see. Every time they they've been able to look deeper into areas that you know that they didn't know was there. You know, if if they thought they had a hundred questions when they when they uh, looked in it real deep, all of a sudden those hundred questions turned to a thousand questions that aren't haven't been answered. So they're not you know they're not sure what they're going to find. The, the uh, I think on uh, July twelfth, the first images from the uh, James Webb uh, Deep Space Telescope. Uh, will be made public. And from what I understand uh, from friends of mine that at NASA, just in the testing part of it, said the, the resolution and the images are going to blow people away. And they'll be able to look at things we can't because they're, they're looking at uh, ultraviolet infrared uh, you know, outside of the visible spectrum. And it's uh, even, even with it getting hit by micrometeors, uh, meteorites, uh, they said it's, it didn't affect the resolution of the uh, of the, of the uh, telescope at all, but, but we're not alone. We're not alone. We're not even close to being alone. There's been so many reports of uh, alien craft going back two, 3000 years. I mean, you, you look at petroglyphs, you look at the hieroglyphics in, you know, in uh, tombs in, in Egypt and in, in the Aztec areas, the Mayan areas in, in the, in uh, Southeast Asia, there are depictions of things with, Crap, you know, humanoids with big heads, big eyes, and what appears to look like discs, or someone in a, in a capsule with 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 oxygen mask, you know, like in a cockpit of a you know, of a, a a craft of some sort, and those and and there's similar uh, stone carvings of the same thing scattered all over the world. So. You know who built the pyramids? You know who uh, who who did some of the uh, you know the big uh, the petroglyphs out in South America that are miles long and it can only be seen from space to you know, to make out what they are and they're yeah. and Jared, that's where we're crossing over into some of your research and stuff. Uh, and what's interesting is is that this is the first time you two have been together to. Uh, on a podcast together but you both work with uh lynn hurley but yeah the the crossover it is interesting now sorry wayne where were you going with that oh i was just going to uh turn it over to you a little bit but jim i still i i need to know what you know about this tr3b thing because it's one of those things that drives me crazy and it drives a lot of people crazy what you know what is it why on you know why aren't we using it right now? Couldn't couldn't we be using this to help the Ukrainians and they would never know we were there? Dur- during Desert Storm, I was activated and my job was to read absolutely every single message to and from CENTCOM. That was from eyes only down to unclassified stuff. And I my I was I, I had a real high I had a real high clearance for 27 years. And one of the things I was looking at is the operational listing, there was 3,000 airplanes every day were listed by serial number, by aircraft type, and by call sign. And I would look at that list every single day looking for something that didn't, that wasn't supposed to be there. 
And these were classified top secret and above. And I never, ever saw anything that wasn't already acknowledged in the world. And I was really disappointed. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that over and above in a, in a compartmental environment that uh, something wasn't going on that wasn't being reported to, uh, you know, to uh, the Joint Chiefs and, and uh, General Schwarzkopf. Schwarzkopf said at the beginning that, okay, if I'm going to head up this, politics, politicians stay the hell out of my way or I'll quit. And that's probably the only reason it was relatively successful because he, because they needed it, they needed it done. So. So from your standpoint, there is no evidence of this TR3B being a real thing, uh, nothing you've seen, or uh, no, do you I've, think it's a piece of misinformation that's put out there to try to debunk and, and, you know, kind of uh, poo poo the whole flying triangle thing? Uh, I mean, there, the disinformation in this world is is running rampant. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's an active disinformation campaign going on on the TR3B and UFOs in general. Now, it just came out today that uh, there were uh, 100 UFOs flying in and around a, uh, a naval uh, a carrier task force group in the Pacific somewhere. Um and you know, sailors are now coming out and say, "Yeah, there was you know, this thing was a you know, hundred feet across. Uh, there were hundreds of them, uh, and they were swarming the uh, you know the uh, uh, battle group." So no, we, you know, we we we're not alone. I mean, the, the, the just just uh, the odds of us being the only ones are ridiculous. We can't be the only ones, and. And the and the, the other the other thing I you know if people say why why won't you know you know uh, Jimmy Carter said he was going to release stuff and then and next thing you know uh, uh, yeah he didn't say anything Barry Goldwater was going to release everything when he became if he made became president and he, then he became senator and he was uh, uh, and he started the first UFO group the very first UFO club if you want to call it was in Phoenix. And it was it was created by Barry Goldwater, hmm. and uh, after he became a senator and when he was running for uh, president, uh, all of a sudden the UFO group that he had formed disappeared, and he would never acknowledge the fact that uh, uh, he was part of it. Jimmy Carter the same thing. Uh, and there have been multiple presidents and, and candidates. I think even uh, Obama said basically the same thing. Yeah. Did you ever get anyone at least confirming the various, or at least from observation, do you have anybody that can say, well, I don't know about that specific plane or unidentified thing, but uh, I will tell you we have this technology. And anyone separately say, well, we have this technology, and together would it make that technology? Ben Rich retired president of the skunk work said in a public forum at UCLA, we have the ability in 1993, I think it was the time frame. We have the ability to take ET home. Now think about that statement. Right. Yeah. I mean, anti-gravity or whatever we can conceive of, uh, you know, whatever they're going to do in reference to, you know, hyper 
you know, distant travel, uh, clearly there's a technology involved that's going to involve a way better understanding of energy, magnetism, frequencies, and waves and energy. I mean, there's, there's indications of that, like you pointed out in our ancient uh, ruins. Um, uh, to Wayne's point, uh, you know, uh, people need to be able to go to websites very easily. So ironically, my uh, website, not aliens, is strictly because it's easy to remember. <laughs> but I've never said that there aren't space traveling anthropologists. But uh, what's frustrating, what we started with in this, one of the things we mentioned right away at the beginning of this conversation is, uh, we have a society that not only is there a general, not for, I think, this audience or for anyone who's reading our books or your books or whatever, or listening to Wayne's show, the reality is um, we have a society that's not taught wisdom. They're not taught to think. They're not they're taught, taught what to yeah, think. Yeah, they're not taught to think independent. No. no. So it's. I think it's hard for them to see technology. And then the problem is we have this, I would call it, in this age of this dying off of these initial experiencers is we have a very broken and, and literally there's a, for all those conspiracy people out there, there was an open secret of when we had the industrial revolution, the plan from the beginning is to create a docile, happy workforce that's satisfied with a watch after 20 years to go crank out parts in a factory. You can't do that with a wise thinking population. So the effort to dumb us down, irrelevant to even the current period, has been an effort since at least the Industrial Revolution in our education. So it's hard to have these experiences. And it's not that there aren't aliens. The issue, though, is all evidences in our past point to a worldwide global society that understood frequencies and energies way beyond where we are now. We have weird cuts in our genes. We have weird biotechnology things. We keep seeing sciences and advancements in our experiences. Now you and I can go pick up a gene CRISPR and by August, we could do some crazy crap yeah. in our garage, yeah. totally illegal. And then we can grab the new 3d printer that may be one of those. If you can acquire things, Jim, then we need a general to get us a bioprinter that we can print our own little fake alien. <laughs> and and which may, what makes you think they we, haven't done that? That's exactly right. And so the other problem is, is that if you're a human being, you know, there's, uh, I have a friend who just went to a tattoo convention and he does body mods with uh, not just all the piercings and hookings, but like the scarring and there's people doing extreme body mods. And, you know, it was uh, Ray Kurzweil and the singularity is near in 2008 is talking about, you know, the advent of, technology and man, the reality is that the biotechnology, if it's an energy and frequency, like the mind control and the, well, you're aware of all the different airplanes that have direct mind contact and control. If you're an advanced human that has figured a lot more technology than we have, the reality is that thinking with your machine may be easier if you're translucent, small with big eyes with onboard infrared. There's a whole Ted talk with a neuroscientist talking about for 28 minutes, very informative on how the human skin sees infrared signals and can actually understand it. So the a way that we would connect with a very advanced machine and the way we would move it, the way we would do zero turns at Mach 20, uh, maybe we need to be shorter. And with the right programming and gene technology, we keep having this dumb idea, this, this K through 12 idea that, well, we're on an evolutionary path. Well, when in reality, we've already been around for hundreds of thousands of years, in a way where we may have already advanced to the point where the technology to mutate the human body, not out of evolution, but out of a, we're going down the tubes now. Yeah. 
well, now we're basically at 15% consciousness. We're not the 90 or 80% conscious uh, human race that was using active, not a religious, but an actual third eye. And we're connecting to biotechnology that we mistake for, you know, errant Fortran programs that are now we call trees were actually houses when they were programmed mm-hmm. correctly. And, you know, but we, we, we have all these worldwide evidences of all these different technologies that are past technologies. We don't understand them, but at the same time, uh, it's not only in the grass plants and our genes themselves and our histories, we clearly have a recent, like you said, there's the Nuremberg incidents in 1500s. You have identical um, eyewitness accounts of aerial combat in Switzerland 20, 30 years later. And, and so we have this entire life, as far as we know, in modern history times, no matter how they've scrubbed it, we have this relationship with someone on this planet being more advanced. And it's not that we can't jump and think, you know, we may have had alien contact or that we didn't leave the planet, which I think we did. The question is, if we would be honest, are the forces that are left, my questions, uh, the frustrating thing is, are we dealing with the good remnant humans? Are we dealing with advanced ancient humans that pissed off somebody already somewhere else? Uh, did they come back? Uh, who didn't get along with who that they were fighting over Nuremberg into the 1500s? And who's to say that it wasn't the uh, last of a social media crowd on a cruise ship that crashed uh you know, 50,000 or 100,000 years ago, the planet got wrecked. And those are the people who rebuilt the technology that they were aware of. We don't even know if we're dealing with the best and the brightest advanced ancient humans. We could be dealing with the biggest jerks of their day. <laughs> Most of them are in, in DC. So, <laughs> right, right. And then the other problem is like the joke about the whole anal probe. It's like, really, you guys have full control of the human genome and you need to experiment on us? Quite frankly, I just think it's errant teenagers who treat us like cattle for their eighth grade advanced ancient human project. And speaking of cattle, what, what do you got against cattle? Right. You know, you know, those poor guys, it's cattle mutilation. What, what, what's going on with (laughs) that? I mean, why do you need to mutilate cattle? (laughs) Do you ever get seriously, Jim, does anyone ever come across your desk with an answer privately about what is the real reason that they are going at cattle? No, it, it makes it no make, sense. It doesn't make sense at all. Uh, mutilating humans, possibly to you know, to, to determine whether yeah. or not we may be an experiment. We may have been planted here from an alien race. Uh, craft that are coming in today may be time travelers. They may be humans. They may be Americans that are you know, a thousand years from you know from now, and and they mastered the uh, uh, Stargate and they're coming back in time to, uh, you know, to this, you know, to this century, one to uh, see if they can fix, uh, if they can stop World War Three or World War Four, or they can, you know, they can create the next, you know, the next scamdemic or pandemic, excuse me. Um, I don't know. I just... There's, there's, there's so, there's so many ways you can look at what has been going on in the unknown aerial phenomena. uh, Yeah. And it just, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think because, and let's jump back to what you guys were saying as somebody like my wife and myself uh, who are in education and we see the, the curriculums and the way things are done in schools and things like that, your feelings are more important than facts and, 
you know, you don't need to learn uh, how to think it's what to think, you know, and, and as a science teacher, I deal with that stuff and try to deprogram the kids, but it, it seems like it's been so ingrained over the last, you know, hundred years of be happy and push a button in a factory. You don't need to think. And then we give the kids all these cell phones to distract them and entertain them while their bodies are, you know, disintegrating and they're pushing a button to make some kind of money or they don't even care about that anymore. It's, you know, it's a teacher's worst nightmare to sit there and deal with, you know, trying to entertain a kid to get them to learn something because they're watching TikTok, you know, or, or whatever the case may be. I mean, I could go on for hours with this and and I don't want to turn it into that, but let's say we've got a population that's like that and you can throw and over stimulate them with so much information that you can no longer decipher what is real and what isn't. And, and so you might have a time traveling person, but who would believe you? It's not entertaining enough. Yeah, whatever. Uh, you could have ancient people that were very high tech. Uh, yeah, but how does that affect me now? You know, it's very easily dismissed. So you could have all of these things. And I think the problem runs into is that we don't ask the right questions. And what those questions are, I don't know yet, but I, I, I think that there's, there's something missing with, and maybe when you get to, you know, my age, 50 something and up, you start thinking, well, you start looking around and going, there's something wrong. You know, there's people are just turned off or they're angry. There's like no in between. Nobody touches the grass. Nobody looks up like you were saying, uh, nobody's really smelling the air they're breathing. It, it's so how are we going to figure out anything about UAPs and UFOs? Yeah. Well, and these things could be just doing, I mean, they're already operating with you impunity, know, impunity yeah. how they yeah. want to. Yeah. Well, I, I was the associate curator at the Pacific Aviation Museum in Pearl Harbor. I lived in Waikiki for four years. I could walk down Kalakawa on any day and there's 10,000, 15,000 people you know, crammed on you know, both sides of the street. And 90% of them are like this. They're staring, they're staring at their stupid uh, cell phones. You go on the beach and here's all these, I mean, there's some gorgeous women out there in some very, very small bikinis. And you'll see these guys. I mean, they're staring at, they might as well be in downtown Detroit or downtown Newark uh, for all that matters, as far as uh, the sights and sounds of, uh, and Hawaii is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. I mean, it's that way most of the time. Yeah. I was there, you know, when I was like 10 years old, so like 40 some years ago. And I remember going to um, the Memorial and, uh, Man, I, I can't imagine going now and then just seeing people maybe take a couple of pictures and then they would just be back on their phones, you know, and, and not even knowing, you know, the memorial or what it stands for, or what happened or any of those things. It's just, you know, we're given a little snippet of history and then we run with it. 
when my son, my son's 46 today, but when he was, uh, when he was in seventh grade, he's a bicentennial baby. He was born in 76. And it was about, it was my son. And I think he had five of his buddies over the house. They're all in seventh grade. They're all good students. The, uh, I forget, there was something on the radio or something on TV about the, the original 13 colonies. So I asked the boys, all of them smart, all of them A students, pretty much. He said, can any of you name all 13 of the original colonies? Well, it was a blank stare. It was like, it was like saying, I want you to do your homework in C++ or Fortran or super basic. You know, what the hell is that? You know, that was the response. I said, can any of you name any one of the original states? Nothing. I said, how about some of the explorers uh, for this, you know, that for North America? You have Sir Francis Drake, you have Magellan, you have Ponce de Leon, you have Lewis and Clark. And one of the, one of the boys said, isn't that a rock group from England back in the 60s? I said, you're half right. It was a Dave Clark five. So no. So I called the director of curriculum of Eden Prairie schools. And, uh, you know, Jared's familiar with Eden Prairie. I am. So it's, it's a very good school system. It's considered I, a very good school system. And I, I got hold of the director of curriculum. She's a graduate from Berkeley, 1968. I said, when everybody in the world is, is, is telling their population, their children, what a great country they're at. This is the greatest country in the world. Oh, we can't say that. They'd make every other country second rate. I said, right. And he said, no. So we, so we, we, we talk about local things. We don't talk about world history. We don't talk about history of the country. It's not important. Oh, Our God. important is, is your self-well-being. And I started calling her sweetheart. And, <laughs> and she finally said, Mr. Goodall, our conversation isn't over. You may leave. Uh, when I challenge her one, you know, you know, one time too many. So I knew, I know the, I knew the principal, my wife, my first wife and I were active in, in PTA and school functions. So I called the principal of the high school. And I said, I said, may I come to the school? I want to take a look at your history book because they teach history, us history one semester in their junior year of high school. When I grew up in Mountain View and Los Altos, we started in first grade learning, you know, we're, you know uh, learning, how America was discovered, you know, the, the original, the 13 colonies, the expansion West and, you know, and everything that goes along with it. So I, I get hold, I get hold of the, I go to the principal's office and he was, yeah, you know, he was, I, I know, I know the, I knew the guy for, you know, for 15, 18 years. He's, he was happy to see me. He said, yeah, here, here's your pass. You can go in the library. They know you're coming. So I got the history book. I started going through it. There's no mention of December 7th, 1941 in the beginning of World War II. No mention at all that the Japanese attacked us. The, uh, the other thing is Vietnam. Now, there's two sides to every war. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there, there are pros and cons of getting into a conflict. But the, the, the chapter on Vietnam looked like it was written by Jane Fonda. Now, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just sorely disappointed in the education system. And I got so disgusted with Eden Prairie Schools that I decided to spend $600 a month and send my son to Benel St. Margaret's. And he, he got a great education. Oh, because my gosh, they teach responsibility and morals and ethics. Well, what, what if those history books and things that we were given back when we were kids and early 1900s was already pre-programmed to get us here today and covering up other histories of like, 
you know, and Jared and I have talked about this, and this is something I'm really interested in is, you know, ancient history and ancient civilizations that go back to the Amazon to, to who was here before, uh, you know, the last ice age and, you know, all of those things that could have existed, which probably do, but because there's no money in it, nobody really you know, does the research. I know Jared is doing a lot of boots on the ground at his own expense and, and looking at these things. Yeah. As, as I, I did for 50 years, as Michael Shrett does every day. I mean, Jim, if you got uh, a procurement abilities or some things I'll need some help with for some equipment for South America, because I do field work and, you know, in order to prove this out, there is technology in the ground, but we're going to have to talk off air because Mr. Procurement, I, I don't know if I have to ring a bell or put like a bat signal up, but we have get to get somebody from the air force to help out. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because there's this relationship that the history doesn't matter, but the questions you're trying to answer about what appears to be advanced technology that dates back two, 3000 years to Roman times and whatever, or, or petroglyphs. hundred thousand years, right? You have the petroglyphs like Lynn just got married and there's a exactly. monument in Utah with uh you know, literally aliens drawn on the walls. And so we've had a relationship with what appears to be, and again, it's not that there's not aliens, but we have frequency and energy-based polygonal constructions that can cancel and manage earthquakes, stone spheres that have the same properties that are being studied finally in Europe and uh, places that are actually starting to do the material science work to show, including Dr. Joseph David Ovitz for geopolymer research, that there is some very advanced technologies, not just in the ground, but in us. And with these um, ancient peoples comes also this juxtaposition of literally stuff flying in the air that is not clandestine military. It is something else. And all of it somehow relates to our current 10 to 15% state of consciousness. How can you discern anything if you're drunk at a bar? We are on sober 10 to 50 percent, 10 to 15% of a brain capacity with various, depending on our gene expressions, various abilities, uh, our uh, conscious uh, connection to the collective human consciousness, whatever it is that makes individually our discernments or wisdoms or skill sets in, in smarts, it, we're all misfiring. We're all looking at this uh, drunk, sober drunk. And, and, there are, there are technologies that you and I possess, our capabilities, I should say, that you and I possess that we have no clue of. My mom, now I say I grew up in the Mountain View, Los Altos area. My mom's 100% Sicilian. Right. And she was born in Halloween, and she could put a curse on you real easy. But we would we'd be sitting in the living room or having breakfast or lunch or whatever, and my mom would say, you know, it feels like earthquake weather. And within 24 hours, we have a measurable, measurable earthquake. There you go. Now, every single one that she ever said we were going to have, it feels like earthquake, whether we've had one. Now, she didn't get them. She didn't get them all. But all of them that she said that was, it was coming happened within 24 hours. For, yep. seven, for seven years, I had a recurring dream of being in downtown San Francisco during a major earthquake. I told my, I told my first wife, uh, who lives still lives in Minnesota? That uh, I, I could, I'm I'm in downtown San Francisco. I'm staying now. I have family in the Bay Area, so I don't. I wouldn't spend 150, 250 dollars a night to you know, to stay in San Francisco, or even back you know, even back in the day. 
And I had this, I said, I can see that the, uh, uh, the bridges collapsing, freeways collapsing, and I see buildings, you know, broken over. I did it for seven years. And all of a sudden on the, uh, uh, it was October, it was October 17th, I think it was, um, when they had the Lama Prieta earthquake. It was seven point something on the Richter scale. And I finally got a hold of my, my wife, you know, my ex-wife. And she says, my God, they said, yeah, what you said was talking about for the last uh, dozen or so years, half dozen or so years actually came to pass. But I had another one, which it was too outrageous. I never told anybody said, I saw wide body jumbo jets crashing into the World Trade Center. I had that vision for about 10 years. Huh. And I was, it was just too crazy to mention to anybody. But my mom's, my, my mom, I could bring a kid over and not, the kid just say, nice to meet you, Mrs. Goodall. And that was it. And she'd give him a hug. He'd go and she would tell me everything about him, his type of the family he's with, everything without her even meeting him for the very, very first time. My grandmother, my grandfather, uh, Sicilian, was in charge of the fishing fleet in San Francisco Bay, all the way down to San Pedro. He was, uh, they had to go to Alaska. They'd be gone for five months. This is around the turn of the century. I'm talking about 1903, 1904 timeframe. And if you fell overboard up in Alaska fishing, you were considered dead. Uh, and there was no communication, but my grandmother was the matriarch of the clan, so to speak. And the, the wives of the fishing fleet, you know, the, all the fishermen would come to see my grandmother and say, Angelina said, uh, in your dreams tonight, could you ask your, your long dead great aunt, how Giuseppe is doing, how much money is in his paying envelope? Cause they had paid cash and it was always different. And she would, she would tell him. And then one night she woke up at about three o'clock in the morning screaming and woke up all the kids and they came running in and said, um, mama, what's wrong? I said, Papa just fell overboard, but he's okay. You fall in water. You know, if you're anchored or you're, you're still fishing with, you know, with uh, sane, you know, saner boats or whatever, you fall in the water. The currents are so strong. They would never catch up with them. And the water is so cold. You'd die of hypothermia. And his foot got stuck in the net and she marked it on the calendar where, when he fell, what the time was and about where. Yeah, this is total confirmation. Part of what I write about is that you can't say that, well, this religion has this thing and well, or this science or this, uh, you know, second sight, exactly stuff like this second sight, remote viewing. Uh, there's uh, all these different modalities that say, oh, this is paranormal or this is alien or whatever it is. The reality is, is that none of it, all of it can't be a little right. There has to be a common uh, base technology and answer to this global mystery, which is really a giant game of archaeological clue. And these examples confirm, as usual, just constantly tabling the facts that superhuman abilities were standard issue, synesthesias, our ability to connect through a collective human consciousness, not an unconscious one, but a collective conscious human consciousness that may have been connected through a way more engineered and terraformed planet. These are all these abilities like Wim Hof, Stieg Severinsen, the ability for us to consciously control our inflammatory response, to not die in a cold water environment, to actually be fine. Um, all of these things are technologies that when you table them all and you look at it collectively, it stops being paranormal, it stops being religious, and it looks like 
you are dealing with um, way more advanced human genetic technology that we just have forgotten and have deified and mystified and, yeah. and don't deconstruct. Yet, meanwhile, we have weapons controls on an F-22 with brain power. You know, we're, and we think, boy, no one's ever thought of that. And well, look at what they do with special operators like uh, Navy SEALs are the famous ones. You know, they stick them in cold water until they they learn how to deal with it. And then they make it, it's no big deal. That's part of their their operations. And and these are just guys that happen to make it through, you know, bud school and and survive the training. But, yeah. you know, they stick those guys in water. They run them for seven days with like four hours of sleep straight to to weed out the very bottom. And it's like, are they really weeding out the bottom? Or are they able to get these guys to crack and tap into something that's always been there? And then Wim Hof shows up and he's like, breathe like this. And you're like, take a cold shower every morning for, you know, yeah. just straight up cold. And it's like, holy crap. Up in Kotzebue, which is the north shore of Alaska, the Eskimos, they'll break the ice and, and jump in the water. Yep. And the, the kids are playing in this water. The water's 29 degrees. Their yeah. skin is bright red. Yep. And they're just having a good time. The air, you know, the outside air temperature is in the 30s and yep. they're not cold. You can see those toddlers in Russia doing it. They, they yeah. literally outside playing in 20 below snow in diapers and yeah. I've done it, Jim. I've turned bright red because I've I've done I've met Wim Hof. I've done the training, and I've literally been red as a lobster due to cold water. Doing a breathing technique that I'm seeing geometric patterns, and I'm telling you, your senses and what you can tap into. These are not accents. What your what your family was doing. Uh, these remote viewings um, against abilities that we chalk up to, Oh, it's random genetic synesthesias. It's like, uh, you know, no, these are, these are not random abilities and we're witnessing it. When we see UFOs, when we see these technologies, when we have these experiences where suddenly someone speaks Spanish or French and they've never heard a word of it, but they're what they're just randomly doing it because of a spiritual experience, or they've tapped into a collective system with genetic memories that tie back to the beginning of all humanity. And through yeah. some unpackaging of a partially broke zip file, they connected to something that, again, we're just, we're currently unconscious of it, but there's too many things where when you yeah. table all the out of place, out of time artifacts, all the UFOs, we have to, the vernaculars and the modalities, I don't have a problem with somebody saying, Oh, it's a UFO or, or, or was that was a miracle. Yeah, everybody grows up with some modality, some, I grew up Catholic and it's, you know, Blaine and <laughs> that's fine. Oh, I could, we could go into some sub stories. Oh here. yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And, and so my nemesis was Sister and Christopher. Oh, there <laughs> you, you look go. under, I haven't, she had Jack boots and I, I know she had a tan shirt with a little black oh, red armband. And the, yeah. And, and my mom had, my mom was left-handed. So she went to the Holy spirit. Okay. And, 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 and Jim will know that, but that's, you know, she came home late once and that was to my grandmother. Um, and my grandfather, by the way, he was in the seventh uh, armor division under Patton. He landed at D-Day in a tank, was a tank commander through Belgium and Holland and France for Ballad Bulge and all the way to Berlin. He was in a tank that entire time. Okay. And quite a guy, all French didn't speak English. He spoke French till he was eight years old and then learned English because he lived on a farm around white bear. But my yeah. grandmother wanted to know why the hell my mom had come home late. And when my mother told her that that battle axe nun had kept her over to train her to not write in the devil's hand, my grandmother went and had a chat with that nun. 
<laughs> my mother was never late again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming home. <laughs> we were talking about, you know, use what the brain can do. I, I had a, a, a roommate of mine named Don Avery. And this is back in the 60s. And he, and he would start to think something and I would say it. Or yeah, there he, you go. Or I would be thinking something. He would say it. And so, and so he went out and got an, ES, an ESP book. And this thing had uh, a, ch- a chart where there were seven symbols, like three dots and th- you know, three wiggly lines with a straight line in the bottom. And he says, I'm, gonna cu- I'm, I'm in the other room. We're uh, resting. We're going to go out and party that night. So I'm just leaning back, relaxed. He said, I'm going to put my finger on a, on a, on a shape, on, on something. I want you to describe it. And he went, he went over the, the list twice. So there were, tw- there were 20 objects. There were 20 things. I got 19 out of 20. And the only reason I didn't get 20 out of 20 is because he used the same shape twice in a row. So I said, well, that can't be right. He just, he just had that. Also, it had it right. But I lost track of him for 40 years. Yeah, he, I, we went different directions. And I knew he went to work for Johnson Wax. So I know they're out of Kenosha, Wisconsin. So now there's, there's the internet. And I see a Donald J. Avery, Kenosha, and a few other places, uh, Hawaii, and, and such. So I I hit on the name. It gives me a mailing address, no phone number, but no and and no uh, uh, email. So I sent a postcard on on this. Let's say this is the the tenth of the month, and I figured it'd take three days to get there. He's in Fallbrook, California, north of San Diego. The day that I found his address, his wife, Meredith, said, Don, did you ever, did you ever uh, know whatever happened to your, your old roommate, uh, Jim Goodall? I said, yeah, I know you, you talk about him a lot, you know, every now and then. You ever know what happened to him? And he said, no, no, he fell off the face of the earth like most people did. Three days later, Meredith comes in you know, to Don's office. He said, uh, said, Don, remember we were talking about Jim Goodall? You wonder what happened to him? He said, yeah, here's a postcard from him. Just arrived today. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, I, and I do that a lot. I run into people that I have never known, and all of a sudden I connect with them. Yep. But, yep. And, and yep. this is not, I don't think any of this is accidental these uh all these stories when we add them all about all the esp all the remote viewing all of it there's there's a science and there's a something in the ether that i always say it's banging on the blinky board you know bang on the left you get a green light bang on the right you get a whatever different color light and then somebody walks up in a thousand years and says why are you banging on the 747 control panel and then somebody yells heretic burn him and then <laughs> and, and god forbid you pray to the blinky board and you yeah. even get it 40 percent right yeah or we're screwed. And so we've related to these different fallen. um, And again, one of the indicators is, you know, we're looking to the stars. Meanwhile, we have cities sunken like off of Cuba that couldn't have been above water for at least 50,000 years. And when I started my book five years ago, before it came out, it took three and a half years for me to do the first one because it covers a lot of this. It took me 50 for my first one. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Now I'm feeling better. You finally came full circle. It made me feel better about 29 books, 100 (laughs) other contributions that you've done. Right. Uh, Thank you for laser guiding my, like, yeah, it sounded better when it was just a hundred, but yeah, that, that, 
yeah, I think that there's a an overall, you know, three and a half years ago, there was they were saying Gobekli Tepe is, uh, you know, there's organics on the site. I tell everyone always screenshot when they find something on the internet because they were commonly saying Gobekli Tepe. Oh, it's one of six sites, and it's uh, fifteen to twenty eight thousand years old. Although they found organics that are thirty six thousand years old. Guess what's never in the vernacular anymore? Now suddenly, I watched over months where suddenly they were saying. Well, it's at least 12,000 years old. Like what happened to the other 18 to 28,000? Where's the narrative? How did that change when you guys know it's much older and now common science, standard academia and alternative history has married and went, well, we'll just say it's 12. It's like, but that's not what you were saying. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, look at these large uh, megalithic stones with these nice relief carvings on them. Just look at those and try to figure out what those are while we sweep everything up. Well, and then, yeah, the same people who built those columns built like the little rubble wall between them. They just gave up after the columns, you know. Right. So It's a constant fight to figure it out that there's a history here that involves uh, just like now there's 150 tribes. They're still breaking in ice. They're still being primitive. Well, if we all went away and all this technology did, there are still people that would show signs if to archaeologists in the future that, oh, look, there's a bunch of Neolithic, you know, Eolithic people here. Meanwhile, we look back in time and go, well, you know, they were all banging rocks, but they also moved really big rocks, really hard rocks. And then they made them very laser guided and could control earthquakes because they were bored. You know, it, it just, we, we, we don't relate to what we find um correctly at all uh, with any common sense it's just a okay we just need to table all of this have these i think it equates to fear i think i think it's people especially in academia when you start questioning on them and they and their paradigm gets questioned they get fearful they don't know how to answer things like i would ask questions when I was one of those college dudes that went through college to become a teacher and I was doing my earth and space science classes and I would be like how did primitive humans with atlatls and whatnot kill 180 species of megafauna that were running around in north and and central America I mean you're talking about uh you know, and they always focus on the ill, chill, or kill. They either got sick, it got cold, or humans killed them, or a combination of both. And it's like, so all the ice sheets just disappeared. And, you know, oh, there was an ice dam, the Missoula flood, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's just glossed over. And it, it usually ends up being, you know, these poor primitive people because they happen to find, you know, some knife marks in mastodon bones well they could have scavenged that that mastodon they they might have killed one of the few to try to survive but there was no way they were going to make go extinct 180 species of everything that was over about 100 pounds yeah yeah overnight you know it just well i think jim and i both agree with you but we don't know much we're dropouts <laughs> yeah. Well, we just you use know, common I, sense, our brain, and wisdom. So, yeah. <laughs> my my problem, and I didn't realize it uh, until years later. I I actually saw what my IQ was, and that's I think it's what disappointed my mother because it's it was 148, and uh, there isn't. I've worked for most of my companies I've worked for have been high tech type companies, 
I can remember I was, uh, now this was in the, I'm trying to think of it, early 80s when uh, optical discs, CD-ROM, DVDs were just starting to, to move forward. And I was working for a company out of Yvadon, Switzerland. And I went back to the you know, company to, uh, for training on the equipment. And I walked in there and then within about 30 seconds, I understood the process. I knew, I could, I, I knew what it did. I knew how it did it. And uh, I wasn't sure how, to, how I could program it. Uh, I could figure that out fairly easy because it was uh, using a uh, program logical controller, PLC, uh, to control the uh, ejection molding machine. But I understood the process. There was a guy with multiple degrees. He was uh, number number three, I think it was, in the hierarchy as far as the engineers there. And he was working on some stuff. And he's, he still couldn't grasp how it went from point A to point B and the process in between. He was, you know, he was still fairly lost. So, or did we, did we just, did we did, uh, make Jarek disgusted and he had to leave? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think you know, so. The great right. thing about us doing this, this show, everyone knows is audio, but we we are all actually sitting together and chatting face to face. We're all drinking scotch right now. And, uh, right. Jim's got a cigar and yeah. for all of those not looking, I went to turn on another light because normally I have a full audio or a visual setup for everyone listening so that when you guys do see me on shows, there's a lot of artificial light involved, but I have this huge 12 foot window that Jim and Wayne can't see. And right now the sun is going down and it's beautiful, you know, um, still sunny afternoon, but it, I realized my camera's like focusing so fast that someone's going to have a seizure if I didn't go turn on another light. <laughs> but, <laughs> so no one's going to see us, yeah, but, right. uh, but so Jim just safe. outed me. Yeah. You know, and, you know I, I've, I told you, I, I've had a number of premonitions of things are going to happen and they happened. And it's kind of, it's kind of scary. I've had another one and it keeps, I mean, maybe once or twice a year, I'll, I'll, I'll have the dream is that I'm in Seattle when the Cascadia subduction zone decides to pop. Huh. Now what, what, that's when the Pacific plate and North American plate are going, the Pacific plate's going underneath the North American plate. And this with the North American plate, it's going like this. It releases every 250 years. They've done core samples. They predict, they said almost, almost like clockwork every 250 years, the uh, they have a major eruption, and it's usually uh, seven to nine on the Richter scale. Wow! It's 150 years overdue, and a University of uh, Washington geologist or volcanologist who were doing the step, you know, studying it, said when it finally does release, and it and if it goes the full 800 miles from the top of. Uh, uh, Vancouver Island down to about Eureka, it will, it will be anything, everything west of I-5 will be gone. I did that. Um, I won the district science fair doing earthquakes and discussing that very subject. I got a blue ribbon for that. And I've been terrified <laughs> of going out there since I was uh, 13 because there isn't going to be a California I mean, I'm looking for beachfront property uh, over the 4th in Vegas. I think that's where the beach is going to end up, you know, or maybe, 
I slush. live in Arizona and it's just beaches right you now, not yeah. just right down the you, road. You, yeah. you and I are going to be sitting with our feet up on a dock and it's not going to be in San Fran. Yeah, no, I have, uh, and I keep having this same thing and I know I'm going to be there, but I'm okay. And people that are near and dear to me are okay. But, but the entire West coast is wiped out. But the one that's, that's freaky. And I, I, and it's, it's along those same lines. When I was on the big Island, Hawaii, this was in 96. I was talking to one of volcanologists there at the, uh, uh, volcanic, you know, the volcano research center there at Kilauea. And he said, have you driven around the crater? And I said, yeah. I said, did you see the sign? It says the rift and there's a sign pointing down. There's a crack in the road. He said, yeah. He said, well, the crack is, uh, there's a big chunk of the island is breaking away from the island and you can actually measure the change <laughs> with a Stanley ruler over, you know, over maybe you go every couple of weeks, you go there and measure nice. another, he said, if it goes in bits and pieces, it'll be, things will be okay. But if it goes all at once, and that's a very good probability, because it did it in Oahu about 120,000 years ago, it's going to dump 60 cubic miles of the big island. It's going to drop to the bottom of 17,000 feet of water. It will be a tsunami that will be 1,500 to 3,000 feet high, affecting the entire Pacific Rim. Everything uh, within 150 miles of the ocean will be gone. Yeah, Lynn, Lynn and I, um, I know you just talked to her the other night. We were sitting at America's Stonehenge in Salem, New Hampshire, did a live show, and we were literally sitting a few feet from a crack. I mean, it's a straight up crack, and there are ferns growing in it. And Dennis is like, yeah, this is the fault line um, right here. And so, you know, you're sitting there and you're going, Murphy's Law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. just yeah, don't yeah. want to i guess we're on a solid piece of bedrock and we were about eight feet from it so like in the movies i hope we can just stand there and we don't fall off and whatever but yeah it's so weird i mean minnesota itself is sitting on a on a on a on a plate that it's so funny i like how they say there's inactive fault lines all i hear is the egg could crack anywhere that's all you know <laughs> it could crack anywhere but yeah. you know, here we are floating around on it, like yeah, la di da di da da da. And yeah. then you know we have these, you know, I, I, you know, one of the theories that I've never looked into, but has been thrown at me as the only way that the like the Eye of Africa could be at its height, and Tiwanaku could be at his at that height, and then the city off the coast of Cuba, off the west side, that's twenty three hundred feet deep. The only theory that ever gets thrown at me, Jim, is uh, hydrostatic plate shifting. Do, do you, I, I know it's a rabbit hole, but do, what do you, do you think of anything of that? Yeah. Do you, I just don't I mean, know. You, you, you look, you look at, at that uh, known sites that we know that were above water. Uh, you know, even up in, up, up in the Himalayas, you know, they've, they found seashells. Right. But uh, do you think any of it could dramatically, do you think there's enough water in the world that we're actually like quite a bit of it is actually leaking down under the plates to the point where it's um, boiling and steaming to the point where it's shifting whole continental shelves to drop and rise thousands of feet. I, I would have to say no, but um, what, the movement of magma will cause that. Yeah. Right. But 
if you think about the, you know, we in here in Michigan, we had three miles of ice on top of us, you know, 10 or about 12, 13,000 years ago. And if you rapidly get rid of a huge ice sheet that went all the way down to Kentucky, you know, from the North Pole all the way around the whole top of this planet. It was, it was SUVs and global warming. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, it was it, it was huh. something else. And if you if you think of of because the we got the crust of the earth and underneath that underneath the crust, we have the asthenosphere. No, nope, we got the asthenosphere, <laughs> which is part of the upper mantle. And that is like soft and plastic like. OK, so so the crust kind of floats around on this asthenosphere. Now, imagine if you have a huge ice sheet that is pushing no, down no longer heavy and then no longer heavy. So you take your hand, push it down into a, a um, like a cushion, like a memory foam cushion. And then you release that hand. You're going to see that what we call isostatic rebound. Cause here in Michigan, we get, we get earthquakes. They're only on a two or a three, but there, it's because we're living in the Michigan basin and that basin is going from this bowl shape and it's trying to equalize out. Now, imagine what happens when you take all of that ice and quickly melt it, maybe in, in two shots with the, the massive you know, uh, distribution of weight and the, the two meltwater pulses that they have evidence for. And what what's going to happen when that weight shift and yeah. the ground happens, you know, uh, yeah. happens to move. So, yeah, I think there is something there's something to that whole isostatic type of weight distribution of water and the ice from the, the northern ice sheets that melt it. And if you talk to Randall Carlson or uh, Graham Hancock, they'll tell you, you know, a, a comet came by that broke up into many pieces and slammed into the North American ice sheet. And that's what caused the massive climate change, the, the melts and the, you know, flooding that is permeate, you know, you can see it permeate the, all the mythologies, you know, 150 myths that talk about the flood. Yeah. So I Jim, mean, any Jim, anytime you are going to fly to Seattle, we need to know. <laughs> every trip <laughs> we are the first to know we will share with everyone in fact yeah. don't go but right. if you do no my my bet my my best and dearest friend in the world lives in seattle along with uh, quite a number i lived there for 18 years so i uh, oh you you play on the edge a lot of people if you don't know besides being on the ring of fire seattle ironically has the most degreed human beings in the country per capita and it lives the city is around five not one five active volcanoes for all of you listening so think of pompeii <laughs> think of what is allegedly the smartest people on the planet and they all live around five pompeis yeah, which makes no near. sense yeah, well, you have, you have Baker, Rainier, uh, Adams, yep. Mount St. Helens, uh, Shasta. I, think. I have Sh- Shasta. From- Shasta's venting right now. Yeah, they're steam oh. venting. Uh, I was talking to a, uh, a guy from the University of uh, Washington, who's who's into volcanoes, and he said the magma chamber of all the Pacific Coast volcanoes, the magma chambers are filling 
There's a oh, tremendous okay. amount of activity that they have never, they have never seen before. Jim, your friend is going to fly and visit you at your <laughs> new beachfront property. You are not well, going out to Seattle. Right. He'll be, Which he'll be, be in Vegas. RB will be here in two days or three days. So good. Uh, not there. You stay. Yeah. You stay there. He comes yeah. there. That's yeah. none of this. Uh, you, and uh, do you have any other recurring dreams? that are just recurring. And I, for years, had a recurring dream. And I realized I've had this dream before. And then it went to, I have a consistent reoccurring dream. Do you have any others that are just, that don't predict anything, but that are just a place or, or something that's just... I, I know I'm going to live to be at least 105. Yeah, no doubt. But d- that's interesting. Is it in a dream? Yeah. And are you doing something in the dream? Or are you just like, oh, I'm at my birthday party? I don't know how I determine how old I am. Other than maybe I'm looking at the calendar. It, you know, it's past. It's 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 2050 or 2051. Um, that I've you know I can see a calendar that has that, and everything yep. around me is is different. Interesting. So, so and yeah, you know, I'm. I have an excellent blood pressure. I don't have I don't have any blockage. Uh, at all in my you know, cardiovascular systems. I have everything about me other than I'm, I can't see, I had cataracts. I can't hear because I had brain tumor and they severed my auditory nerve in one ear and I've been around airplanes too much. So I can't hear much out of the other ear. I got rotten knees, but other than that, I'm, I'm a perfect specimen of a 77 year old guy. But, wow. So when we meet, are you going to look like Captain Pike from Star Trek? <laughs> He's all buff. Hey, yeah. Is there going to be some sort of high tech, like, you know, movement machine? And it's like, well, yeah, that or he's going to be on a little rascal. We're going to yeah. have to eat at TGI Fridays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, that's those are all those funny things where you do something, you experience life and then the repercussions. It's like, well, you know, you're going to have these adventures and then, well, here's the, here's what you're going to suffer your yeah. eyesight, your uh, hearing. And um, well, we don't know about your knees, but it's not looking good. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I, uh, I burned a couple of t- uh, 90 foot telephone poles uh, when I was in the air force, I was up taking an antenna down and I'm coming down on hooks and I, uh, I'm at the 85 foot level. I take my belt off. I unhook one, one leg, one foot and I stick it into what I thought was wood, but I was, I didn't realize I'd hit a metal plate. Oh, I took the other one out and I'm free falling 85 feet and I'm holding myself away from the, uh, the telephone pole and it was slow motion. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I don't cut back in, I'm going to be wearing my knees in my ears. So I brought very slowly, I brought my legs up and I cut back in about five feet from the bot, from the ground. Yeah. I took one step and I was off. I took my climbers off and I went to stand up and I fell down. I had bruised the inside of my calves and the bottom of my uh, feet so much. Uh, but I didn't get hurt. But it Crazy. was it was all in slow motion. It was all in slow motion. I uh, I I rock climb but with ropes, but uh definitely I've I've I mean I, the longest fall I've had was uh 25 feet. And um it's quite a thing to fall like actually fall off of a tall wall or 60 feet or 80 feet. It's a thing. Um, but that's, I don't know if you can chalk that up to luck or just like extreme uh, 007 skill. It wasn't my time. Clearly not. 
I believe I, I don't believe there's I don't believe in consequences. I mean, not consequences. Coincidence. Uh, coincidences. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people, people and, and events happen to you because you're supposed to. You yeah. People, people coming into your life and go out of your life because that was part of the master plan. It's so funny. Well, Lynn was talking about you. A few people were mentioning nothing in my vernacular, nothing in my mindset said, well, you know, sounded really interesting, but I had no idea I'd be sitting here with you with, with Wayne. This is like, it's so bizarre to think I spend almost two weeks filming uh, all the various ruins in Connecticut and over in, and, and Salem and, and America's Stonehenge over the last week and a half. And I was in Texas looking at the Galt archeological site. And over the last two months, I've been out of town, but it's so funny how you just kind of came into the um, universe for me. And then here we are doing a show together and meeting. And now we're going to meet in August. It's um, I don't believe it's accidental either. Yeah, and I just happened to to text you today, this morning being like, Jared, I'm going to have Jim Goodall on Michelle's not going to be here. <laughs> Can you help out? You want to come on? <laughs> He's like, sure. And, yeah. and here, both of you work with Lynn, you know, and, and who's the one person I haven't been able to talk to yet on, the, on my podcast, Lynn, because <laughs> she ran off and got married. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, no one's perfect. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's a shout out, yeah. Lynn. Maybe she'll hear much that. Much love, much yeah. love. Yeah. yeah. No, I just, she's just, I, I, am, I thoroughly enjoy my two hour segment with her and yeah, it's, it's only scheduled for an hour, but we've never made it an hour. You know, we, yeah. it, it usually goes an hour, two, two hours, 10 minutes, two hours, 20 minutes. And we finally say, Hey, I got to go. Cause my dog, I have a, I have a rescue German shepherd. Her name is Scarlett. Uh-huh. And she, she is, uh, she, she can tell time and she knows at five 30, if I'm on that stupid computer, she'll come in and she'll start pestering me. And if I ignore her, you start barking because it's your, it's time to come into the you know, living room with the rest of her, with the rest of her pack. So <laughs> my wife, my dog and I are in the same room because she, you know, she's, she's the most incredible creature. I've had German shepherds before, but, but she's, she was a feral street dog for the first 14 months of her life. Wow. And they picked her up and she is the sweetest. She doesn't, doesn't respond to a name. She doesn't know how to play catch. She doesn't know how to fetch. Uh, but she is, she, she has us well-trained. She has a white, I had a white German shepherd, um, okay. but the, they're so smart and they're very chatty. Is yours chatty? Like yeah, a little bit. I my, my two, I had two purebred German bred German shepherd when I lived in Whidbey Island, North of Seattle. And I, uh, I had to put deadbolts on the French doors going out to the deck, not to, not because I was concerned about, burglars but charlie brown was my 130 pound male he knew how to open every door in the house cool so i put in deadbolts and when i close it i go over there and he'd come right up look at me and i would cover <laughs> i would cover so he couldn't see what i'm doing and i would deadbolt the door we Crazy. couldn't understand we we would come we would come home from we had an invisible fence around the property and we'd come home from at night my my little female bear was a barker. Charlie Brown didn't bark. He did. When he did, you knew it. And uh, we'd, we'd put them in the garage. I'd bring their beds in there. There was water and food. And we'd, we'd go because this is before I put the deadbolts on all the doors. 
because we'd always, he'd always, they would always be outside. We came home one night and both dogs were at the end, edge of the driveway. I said, I could have sworn I closed the, the, the back door to the garage. So I opened up the garage, you know, I hit the garage door thing and opened up and the back door is open, wide open. So I go in there to go to grab it and close it. And it was slimy and it had teeth marks on it. it was oh my knob. gosh. He knew that he bit it and turned it and pushed. He would open it up. Okay, and Wigby isn't that off of Everett? Yeah, directly that- off of Everett. Yeah, you take the you take the Muckleteal Ferry to Clinton, which is on uh, which is where the ferry terminal is there on Whidbey Island. So I was on one of the private islands in off of Everett. I had my I had a very Hat good Island. friend. Which one? Hat Island. Yeah, so like everybody has these old vehicles out there. They all own land. They all got their their boats and their slips. And yeah, I I my my daughter learned to drive on that island. Oh, okay. Um, I, love, yep. I love I love the Pacific Northwest. It's beautiful, but it's a, it's turned into an open toilet. Uh, there you go, everyone. Places you're not going to go because it'll be underwater soon. Yep, <laughs> or not. Yeah, but yeah. Um, well, you know, yeah. this is a perfect example, Jared, of uh, synchronicities, man. Because you know, here, you know, he's got family and from Minnesota. You're in Minnesota. I mean, you both work with Lynn, but you didn't meet before. It's just. Uh, yeah. It, it, I've been it, to Everett. It, I've been to crazy. Everett. He lived there. Um, yeah. I've been on, I, I've been on the very islands he's talking about. And then uh, there is a lot of overlap in the twin cities. And then uh, as far as research goes, I think there's probably a lot of stuff that overlaps. One of the things I theorized is that all over the world, there is this ancient engineered soil called Terra Preta. Uh, it's a, it's, we don't know how to replicate it. It's in places that were always supposed to be nomadic. It has piezoelectric properties. It filters heavy metals, but there's enough oddity with it that that collective human consciousness and memory system, part of me believes and thinks that the reason Minnesota is one of the most inventive and creative places. And I've checked this, a friend of mine who moved to Seattle was a, is a very brilliant therapist, but I've said, look, everybody feels like they had a special childhood, but there was there something that we were like hyper aware of growing up? Was it like, was the eighties really about us? I mean, was it really, was there something exceptional about like what we're aware of? And she's like, yeah, there is. And I can't help but think that around the world, anywhere that people are living on a more mass concentration of the external and physical remnants of a very ancient past, I think somehow we have a slightly better connection to uh, these collective consciousnesses, genetic memories. I think we're just better at reconnecting uh, at some of it. And I, I, I think it's soil related. I think it's genetic related. Well, it could be frequency too. I mean, right. Yes. Yep. And I think Tesla said it uh, back a hundred years ago that there's a certain frequency was it 433 uh, megahertz or something? It's in that, it's in that realm. And they have, for whatever reason, the Bureau of Standards throughout the world decided that we weren't going to use that. You know, we, we were going to hide that frequency and it's gone to something else. And he said, people who are still in tuned with that frequency, you know, the, you know, the people that, uh, uh, do incredible things like Elon Musk. I mean, yep. uh, I love his, I love his comment. He said, I didn't go to Harvard, but a lot of people work for me, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And yeah. It, it, he's ruthless. It's wonderful. Cause he's not 
trying to be intentionally mean about it, but he's very matter of fact, it's over and over. It's not like one time. It's like, look, were you smart enough to maybe try college? Great. But were you also smarter and did you quit? And, you know, what's driving you to, well, you know, look, I'm <laughs> there. Wayne's shaking his head. I'm no. shaking my head. But, Cause I, but, I had to stay in to get my, my degree to be a teacher. However, before I became a teacher, you don't know this, Jared, but for the first, after I got out of the military and I was in a band and I toured for about eight years with a band. And one of the places we played was the Mirage Princess Club over there in Minnesota and oh. got to got to meet Prince. And this was all before he had passed away and everything. But that would have been weird if it was after. Well, yeah, I ran into him at uh perimeter there on uh, first avenue all right and also hey, he's a Glenn, short guy Glenn slam oh he was like five foot three or something yeah like that. He was, very he was, short yeah he was a really tiny guy yeah but for for during that time for about 20 years or so i worked in it i was one of the first kids on my block to get a commodore 64 <laughs> and learn basic programming and we talked a, about this yes cassette player but that's yeah. you know I was doing it and I was a, a manager of, you know, the borders Walden book days, Yep. my, my technicians. So I had a team of 12 technicians and we were responsible for 900 Walden stores around the world. And those were the people we supported making sure their computers all worked and everything. So we all are coming from the same bizarre place to end up here. I I'm just, I'm just sitting back trying to put all this through my brain and it's just driving me crazy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the fact that in, I think it was February of, of 19, not that many years ago. um, My friend, Michael Schratt said he was going to be at a MUFON function in Phoenix. So I decided at the very last minute, I decided to go up to Phoenix and uh, meet with Michael but I also knew that that uh, George Knapp was going to be there and, and Jeremy Corbell. Uh, uh, but I went there primarily to see Michael. And when I got there, uh, Richard Dolan was was the speaker. So there was nobody in the vendor area. And I go in there, sit down. Uh, I asked, guy was sitting right, at, right as I came in on the left-hand side. I said he had an extra, uh, very soft, cushiony uh, uh, chair. I said, can I can I use, use your chair? He said, "Sure." He said, uh, "He said my name's Doc Skinner." And I said, "Well, I'm Jim Goodall." And he just stopped. He says, "Jim Goodall?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "I didn't see your name on the program." I said, "Why would my name be on the program?" He said, "You're very very well known in this in this you know in this area of interest." And I said, "I'll be darned! I didn't know that." <laughs> so. Uh, and I didn't. So I went up, I actually went to the first disclosure con. It was in uh, 2019 up in the uh, Sholo, uh, uh, Pine Top area of the Rim Country in, in uh, Northern Arizona. And this all, you know, my, my involvement in this community didn't start until February, March of 19. So I had, and wow. I didn't go to my, I didn't go to my first MUFON function. And the, and the only one they had in 2020 was in, in uh, late February, early March in San Francisco with Lauren Felton. It put something together. And that was, that was the first time I ever gave a talk. Wow. 
I figured you spoke before that. No, no. I just, when I didn't write, I didn't, you know, when I retired in 2013, I just, I wrote books. I get one a year to get them out. My Blackford book was 50 years in the making, but it, it is the ultimate Blackford book. Uh, even the guys at the Skunk Works say that. But no, I had, I had absolutely, I had always had an interest in it, but I had no direct involvement until, until uh, you know, late winter 2019. And, and this is where we're at today. Crazy. You know, the, uh, the big famous Tic Tac video that everyone's chatting about. It's funny. I'm at, I'm with Dennis Stone at America's Stonehenge and we're looking at the different, I was there for the Equinox just last okay. week. Right. Okay. And, um, but to, we're looking around and he's like, do you see that, you know, across the Valley, you know, the America's Stonehenge is 110 acres, but the main site where all the Equinox and Solstice points, we're looking at one and he goes, do you see that radio tower that's across the Valley about 20 miles? That's where the Colonel lives. That's saw the Tic Tac. He lives right here. And I'm like, what? He lives right across from America's Stonehenge. I think it's the alignment that's in line with actual Stonehenge. But he lives dead across the valley. It's crazy how yeah. small or the interconnected or a couple degrees from everybody and everything it can be. Um, this uh, experience speaking, though, are you having a good time with it? Oh, I love it. Now that you're at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I have 50 years of memory. I'm blessed with an extremely good memory. Um, Music to me is a time machine. I can hear a song and it can take me back to the moment I heard it and I can see everything in color. I can tell you where I was at, who I was with, what I was wearing when I was five years old, when I, you know, when I first heard. Even the smells and stuff will come back. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I wonder that 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 could be a synesthesia thing for you too. But also, I think it's because you're Sicilian. You said Sicilian, right? Yep. Yeah, you yep. guys can't forget debts and other <laughs> other other things. Yeah. You, uh, yeah. yeah. You, you are a human Rolodex of. I will ask for a favor someday. Yeah. Use guys. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you're uh, genetically disposed to remembering everything. We've been there everyone. for. We've been in for two and a half hours. Yes, we have. And I was just going to jump in and say, we should probably wrap this up. So it's been an awesome conversation, but Jim, before you go, I got to ask you just two quick questions. Number one, what kind of appearances do you have coming up in the future? Any new book releases or anything that you want to tell the audience about? I'm working at my 29th book is, uh, is at my publisher right now, uh, which is Osprey. It is uh, Rick Over's dream, the nuclear Navy. And I cover uh, at least one page per submarine. A lot of pages, I have, a lot of summers, I have uh, either two, four, or six pages. And I cover all 227 nuclear-powered submarines built or designed or under construction for the United States Navy. And it is, it's basically an encyclopedia and a memory book. And that's at uh, Osprey right now. My 27th, my 28th book, which is uh, is not out yet because I need to get access to an, uh, an Ohio class SSGN arsenal boat. I've covered from the reactor bulkhead forward internally and externally, the Ohio boat, the C4 version, and then the D5 uh, upgrade. And I've been on 20 nuclear-powered submarines at one time or another. I've been to 400 feet deep in a ballistic missile submarine. 
I have requested, uh, but because of COVID, everything got screwed up. I had requested from the Navy, the next Virginia class that leaves Bremerton, you know, Puget Sound Naval Shipyard, I want to be on it when it's heading back to Pearl Harbor. It's eight days. They'll go down. They'll go to they'll go to test depth, which is on the uh, Virginia class. I believe is about twelve hundred feet. They'll do uh, emergency blows, and they'll do all you know. They'll do all they do all their testing and everything else. You know when they when they leave when they leave Puget Sound, they go through all the things in deep water just off the coast. So if they have problems, they can always come back and and get them fixed. But it's. Um, uh, as soon as I get access to, to an SSGN, either at Kings Bay in Georgia or at uh, there in Hood Canal at, at Bangor, then my 28th book will be uh, will be submitted. Uh, I just I love machines, and, it, and friend, friends of mine said, "Well, said you're you know you're an airplane nut. So what the hell are you doing with with submarines?" They said, "They're stealth, they're black, and they're deadly." It meets all the qualifications to have me interested in them. And the fact that 99% of the world has only seen the top five feet and the sail off a submarine. They do their business. They're underwater. You don't know where they're at. Um, I did a, uh, I have a three volume set. Volume one and two are already done. I did the, the Los Angeles class, the 6888 and the 688I and uh, know your adversary. So I cover the Chinese, the Russian, the North Korean, and the Iranian uh, subs. And then I, volume two was on the Virginia Sea Wolf class. It took me seven and a half years to get on the USS Connecticut because they only have three Sea Wolf boats and you can't get on uh, the Jimmy Carter because that's the, uh, the spook boat. Um, and I photographed everything. And people who are in the Navy who have, in the submarine service have been on the Connecticut or the Sea Wolf said, how in the hell did you get a camera on that boat? I said, well, it took me seven and a half years, but I got on <laughs> and I photographed everything. I mean, forward of the, of the boat, the reactor bulkhead, you know, you could look, you could look into the, the passageway back to the uh, maneuvering room. But if I were to stick my head in past the threshold, uh, I could be arrested and charged with uh, espionage. Wow. So, but it's, uh, I just, I, and the, the guys are great. The guys are great. And it's just, there, you have a, an 18,000 ton, 560 foot long machine that they, they've limited down to 20 submarine launch ballistic missiles. It used to be 24. The D-5 has the capability of carrying 14 W-78. Uh, they're about one kiloton, about, I think they're 80 kilotons. But the D-5 carries the, the W-88. And that is uh, 450 kilotons. And it, usually each missile carries at least three, typically four. And they're limited by salt. Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. Uh, that is the baddest machine on the planet. When they go out, when they go out on patrol, there's only three people in the world have any idea where they're at: the captain, the XO, and the navigator. They have 150,000 square miles of northern Pacific Ocean, and they're they're as quiet as anything out there. And they only do four knots. They go down to 700 feet, and they go in a zigzag pattern. And multiple times a day, there are places on the ocean that have 
like transponders that they go over and hover over them and they update their initial inertial navigation system. And every time you update your INS, your error rate gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So by day one, when you go out, maybe you're, you know, you, you can hit, you know, you can hit your target within maybe a hundred feet or 150 feet. By the end of your patrol, you can hit it within about three or four feet. They've, you know, they've, uh, you know, they've, they've adjusted and improved, improved the resolution of, of where you're at as it pertains to the gyros on the missiles and on the, on the sub. You're also doing a weekly show with Lynn Hurley over there at rebellious ufology. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's just, it's my fun Monday. Everybody said Monday. Monday Yeah. Monday's from uh, five to seven Pacific uh, coast time. Okay. And that's like uh, about eight o'clock Eastern time. Yeah. And it, it, and we usually go uh, at minimum hour and a half. I don't, we haven't, we've never gone an hour and a half. It's, we've gone at, at least two hours, two hours plus. Yeah. Kind of like this. One. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I got on, I wasn't sure what we we're going to talk about. We've talked about everything under the sun. Yeah. And I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that uh, I've linked up with Jared and yeah. Uh, yeah, me too. Last question. And this can include ex-wives, but do you have any ties to Michigan? <laughs> uh, oh, we left Michigan out, Jim. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't. Other than I, ha- I have some friends that live there. Okay. Uh, and Bob Lazar used to Bob Lazar used to live up near Travis City. Yeah. And uh, I was I was supposed to visit him uh, the end of April, and I, after I gave my talk at Beale Air Force Base, I was in there to go spend a couple of days with him. And my car does not drive. There was chance of snow in some of the passes. And you know, my, my rear tires are t- 13 inches of wide tread. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's squirrely enough when it's damp out, let alone being on uh, snow and ice. So I had, a, yeah. I had a cancel. Jim, well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I hope everybody enjoys the conversation. And Jared, it's always great talking to you and having you come on and uh, help out and be actually my wingman on this one. So it's been a guy's night out. So this was, this was fun. I enjoyed every bit of it. Well, it sounds like you had a heck of a night, Wayne. Oh, that was awesome. I mean, three guys sitting around talking about fast planes, spooky planes, fast cars, UFOs, heavy books, very heavy books, the, the six pound book. Yeah, I'm still waiting for my loan to get approved so I can get one shipped here. I, I was going to say the book weighs more than I did at birth. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is Jim's baby, so, you know. Hey. hey see what I did there? <laughs> you did. Wow. But yeah, the Skunk Works, 75 years of Skunk Works, Lockheed Martin. Man, those guys have been accused of using alien technology to make these aircraft and You know, think about what Jim was saying when he was friends with the former president and the new president, well, Ben Rich, and then he passed away, and now there's the new president of Skunk Works, you know, and Ben Rich was saying, you know, we've got things in the desert that's 50 years ahead of what you can think of, you know, what what the heck, that was like 30-some years ago he was saying that. Well... I know that I look forward to getting Jim back on the show so I have a chance to talk to him as well. 
So he definitely, uh, he's a character. Oh, yeah, definitely. So he, he is a character. Yeah, and everybody, don't forget, you can also see Jim every Monday on the Rebellious Ufology YouTube channel, hosted by Lynn, used to be Wallington, but now it is Hurley, so Lynn Hurley's channel. Man, this was a long one, Michelle. I think we should probably wrap it up at this point. Yeah, what do you think? I'll go ahead and wrap it up for the night, and until next time. All right, everybody. Have a good night. We're going to get out of here. And remember, keep your eyes to the sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time.